This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with OGV Taproom. OGV Taproom is ideal for a pre-match beer or two with your mates, or even a meeting or corporate event. Boasting a great selection of local and international craft beers, spirits and wines, you can even pour your own OGV pint. Pop into OGV Taproom on Bridge Place Aberdeen or book online at ogvtaproom.com. Slight of foot there. Wednesday and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 15 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott and joining me this week as always it's Gavin Baxter and Graham Steele. How's it going guys? Good thank you. Well had we um, had we come on this show to talk about defeat then I'd be coming on here complaining more than Kevin Nisbet does about fucking nothing. Uh, but seeing as it was a win, I'm as good as Martin Ball's hair transplant. Which is excellent, to be fair. A good hair transplant. That's what it takes when you get your agent to drum up some interest and then you can whack in a new contract deal and go straight to the hair clinic. And it's another busy episode this week as we start by taking a look back at the Don's defiant and much-needed victory over the pyramid-selling, cryptocurrency-wielding, green-and-white half of Edinburgh. Thank God for Hibs in the SPFL Premiership before we then preview a crucial week as we look to build on that win as we visit Mordor on Wednesday evening, followed by the visit to Patojo by Hearts next Saturday. And with no women's action to review this week, we'll take our regular look at the young team and round up our loanies and their performances in the last week. And after the break, we're delighted to continue our series of interviews with ex-Dons with an exclusive in-depth conversation with a man who made 193 appearances in his time at Aberdeen, scoring 37 goals, picking up a League Cup and Scottish Cup winner's medal in the process, including a brace in the 1989 Skull Cup final against Rangers, it's the legendary Paul Mason. But first, Aberdeen won, Hibernian nil. You heard that right, nil. Petodre Stadium, Saturday 23rd of October 2021, the SPFL Premiership. And after a tumultuous week at Petodre, with the fallout from the previous week's horror show at Dens Park, Aberdeen boss Stephen Glass made three changes to his starting lineup with Joe Lewis, Ross McCrory, and Marley Watkins coming into the side with Gary Woods, Johnny Hayes, and Jack McKenzie all dropping out. McKenzie worryingly having picked up an ankle injury on Thursday in training, and rumours abound that he is on crutches and will see a specialist on Monday. Jack Ross ringing the changes for his Hibernian side, still smarting from their 3 0 hiding by Dundee United the week before. Darren McGregor, Paul McGinn, Lewis Stevenson, and James Gullen being brought into the side. And Aberdeen lined up in what appeared to be a hybrid 3 4 3, 3 4 1 2, 4 3 3 formation, depending on who's watching, with what appeared to be a back three of Bates and Galker and McCrory, with McCrory effectively falling. Martin Boyle out onto the touchline as required. And the Dons were first to threaten Macy, forced to pam away a decent 30-yard hit from Ryan Hedges, with Hedges looking in the mood in the early stages, finding pockets of space between the midfield and a front two of Watkins and Ramirez. 20 minutes in, a Ramsey cross looked easy for Macy to collect, a collision with his own defender, McGregor, led to the ball squirming loose, and Macy just grabbing it as three Aberdeen players swarmed in. 
The Dons took a deserved lead on 27 minutes. Scott Brown winning the ball in midfield, throwing an outrageous step over Dummy and clipping a ball into the path of the on-rushing Ramsey, whose neat cutback was met by Ramirez on the volley, who guided it home inside Macy's left-hand post. A fantastically put-together goal by Aberdeen, with Ramirez grabbing his eighth goal in 17 appearances in a red shirt, his fifth in 10 league games since making the move from Houston. And he would be the SPFL's top scorer if you discount penalty kicks. Unfortunately for the Dons, though, Calvin Ramsey forced on the pitch after pulling up with what appeared to be a muscle strain or pull, looking to come about in the build-up to the goal. Johnny Hayes replacing the young man with Funzo King Ojo switching to the right-hand side. And Hibs fashioned their one and only clear-cut opportunity of the game on 36 minutes, Boyle breaking the offside trap, only for his shot to be blocked well by Ross McCrory. Five minutes from the break, things went from bad to worse on the injury front for the Dons, with Declan Gallagher appearing to pull something in his left thigh as he made a straightforward clearance. Matty Longstaff coming off the bench this time at slot into midfield, with Scott Brown taking up a position in the centre of the back three. Watkins came close to grabbing a second for Aberdeen after some good work between he and Ramirez, his shot flashing past Macy's post with the goalkeeper stranded. And a poor challenge by McGregor on Watkins could easily have seen Hibs reduced to 10 men before Longstaff found his way into the referee's book following a swift kick to the balls of Paul McGinn. Halftime, 1-0 to the Dons, and into the second half, Hibbs making a halftime switch with Jamie Murphy replacing the ineffective Chris Cadden. And Hibbs began the second half with plenty of possession, but little to show for it. Where have we heard that before? As the Dons were happy to allow Hibbs to play in front of them. Indeed, it was Aberdeen who nearly grabbed the goal on the counter-attack. Watkins with a fine run before being fouled, the referee waving advantage, but not before the ball squirted to Hedges, whose cross ball just flashed past Ramirez. The game settled into a pattern of Hibbs having plenty of ball, but not doing much with it. On 67 minutes, Murphy finally managed to beat King Ojo and his cross was flashed across the six-yard box. But McCrory did well to marshal Nisbet to ensure that he couldn't get to the ball. A minute later, a ball into the box caused some chaos in the Aberdeen box, Lewis gathering it well but taking a smack to the face via McCrory. And after some lengthy treatment, Lewis was able to continue. With 13 minutes to go, Marley Watkins was replaced by Niall McGinn, anxious one would imagine to prove that he could out-sprint a 49-year-old with two dodgy knees. And the Dons nearly sealed the game on 89 minutes. A free kick from Hedges, helped on by Brown, and Macy just clawed the ball away from Bates as he was ready to pounce. Into seven minutes of injury time, and McGregor saw a second yellow card flashed his way after appearing to lash out at David Bates as the players waited for a cross to be swung in. A clear sign of how good a job Aberdeen had done at frustrating Hibs for the entire second half. And that was it. The data Dons seeing off the Hibs tokens to finally end a desperate run of form, picking up a clean sheet in the process, and breathing a new sense of enthusiasm into the team and support ahead of a busy couple of weeks before the next international break. And a performance from Hibs that heaps the pressure on Jack Cross, it's three defeats on the spin, and no doubt that I'll have Chairman Ron Gordon producing an email from Dave Cormack next week where the Aberdeen chairman lauds the Hibs performance as being one of the finest he's seen at Pataudry in the last 30 years. Gents, thoughts on that one? I can't remember how to review a win. No, it's been a wee while, but an obvious statement is... A much needed win, you know, three points. It was quite a lot, a lot of heat going on with the club at the moment, so it maybe takes a bit of heat out of the situation. And it's just really satisfying to be talking about Aberdeen getting the getting the win, and more importantly, actually looking pretty solid and in control of the game. Generally speaking, yeah, very encouraging um, to. Get that result. I mean, ultimately, the win was the most important thing, obviously. Encouraging aspects of play, uh, both in attack, in midfield, and 
defense and hopefully this is something we can build on move forward and I suspect this was a maybe a system that was brought about by circumstance um Jack McKenzie getting injured but uh hopefully maybe we just happen to have found ourselves into a, a shape that you know provides this group of players the best platform to go on and actually you know secure some positive results and yeah hopefully season starts now yeah I mean let's talk about the system actually to begin with because the system worked really well for us, gave us a solid base to work from. The back three, I thought, all looked very comfortable. It's the most comfortable I've seen Gallagher and Bates look since they've been here. Um, we'll come on to Ross McCrory later on. Obviously, the other critical part for the game, as I thought, was that it gave Ramirez some real support up at the sharp end of the pitch. Marley Watkins alongside him for most of it, with Ryan Hedges kind of playing in the hole between the midfield and the attack. I, I just, as you say, I don't know if we... If, if we've stumbled on the system by, I'm not going to say accident, but forced into it because of the injury to Jack McKenzie, it's what we've been crying out for, and it worked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about this at the game, and Ramirez, his goal scored record here is, you know, it's effectively one and two. It's pretty admirable for a guy that's effectively been playing a lone striker role in a team that's not been creating a huge number of chances. But even he mentioned it in his, uh, in his post-match interview, the... Um, the importance of having Marley Watkins up there with him just to Marley Watkins might not be the most prolific striker or attacking player that's ever existed, but you can see the quality he has in terms of just stretching a defensive line. Maybe he does the kind of like hold up play or target man role, or, you know, gives us that out ball, whatever you want to call it. And it does just allow Ramirez to have that space to just go and make those instinctive runs that he does gives him, you know, and Ramirez spoke about himself that this was a, something that had been worked on in, in training throughout the week that, you know, Watkins makes that run to take the Hibs defense towards goal and then Ramirez drops off. And yeah, it's it sounds well rehearsed, well prepared. And yeah, it was effective. I Ramirez, it's a great finish, but yeah, Marley Watkins for me, richly deserved man of the match performance. Thought he was excellent. I think we've all, I know the three of us have spoken about a desire to see someone up there with Ramirez, just basically give him support and get and give the opposition defenders something to think about. And I know on more than one occasion we've said, you know, Ramirez is he's working hard, he's putting in a shift, but he's dropping so deep to try and get the ball and get involved that he's he's basically running out of steam as the game goes on and he can't maybe keep up if Samuels breaks free or something like that. So him maybe not having to run around, you've got someone else kind of do the dirty work is quite fair in Marley Watkins, but Someone else, yeah, whether it creates a bit of space for him or whatever. Um, and the finish was good. I think we've all said before, there's nothing wrong. Well, I don't think it's, there's anything wrong with his finishing. I think he will score goals. But we we need to help him a little bit more than than we have been. Uh, and maybe today's the sign of you know, that maybe spells out a little bit more. Although I think admittedly, to be fair, you know, Watkins hasn't been available all the time he's been here with injury. So I'm not suggesting that... Um, He's been intentionally playing Ramirez on his own. It's maybe been circumstances, but hopefully if Watkins is is now fit, this is maybe the sign of, of things to come. I mean, Gav, you're absolutely right. Watkins is not going to be a guy since we're 20 goals a season for you, but what he does bring to the team in his work rate, his ability to take the ball down and dribble and run at players, um, take players on. He's not necessarily the quickest, but he's good with the ball at his feet. An intelligent player knows when to knows when to take the ball in, knows when to lay it off. It's got a good physical presence about him, doesn't get bullied around the ball too much. There were signs as well, I thought of him and Ramirez starting to link quite well. I mean, that's 
that, that's probably the longest they've ever been on a pitch together, I think, on Saturday. So it's still a partnership in, in, in fruition, but it was it was impressive. Watkins is clearly not fully fit yet either. So it all bodes well. Um, Hedges, I thought as well, can it fade out the game a little bit? I think he started the game very, very well, playing in that pocket between the attack and the midfield. And again, that's something we've also been crying out for for a while, is somebody providing that link between the midfield and the attack. I, it's been mentioned by us at the stadium, people we've been fortunate enough to speak to on the you know previous shows, the gap, well, basically the gap between defence, midfield, midfield um, and the attackers. So someone that can, yeah, kind of be that go-between. Uh, it's definitely something that has been missed and it's really encouraging to see that. And I think it kind of reinforces what I know the three of us have said on plenty of occasions. Well, it's felt we had decent players and clearly not been playing to the best of their ability. But, you know, Saturday, I think, reinforces the point that there are good players and maybe it does take time. Everyone tells us it takes time, but, you know, maybe maybe that just is the case. And hopefully Saturday is just a sign of, yeah, it's, it's in the locker. We just need to be able to find the key to that a little bit more often than we have done to date. Yeah, much agreed. Um, hopefully as well, um, as we've been mentioned to in the past, Hedges can stay fit for a sustained period and be available to do that role because, you know, he makes, he makes a huge difference, no doubt about it. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And I saw somebody tweet out to Sarlon because we, we, we said we were going to be recording tonight and somebody asked the question, big questions to ask. Ramirez now it's five and ten um, in the league, which is a good start in a team that's struggling and has been struggling to create clear-cut chances. And they've all been from, well, I was going to say open play or set pieces, but he's, he's not a penalty taker. Um, so he would be the top scorer in the league if you take penalties out of the equation, which I know is a bit of a... You know, it's playing with the statistics a little bit. But, well, that's um, what we do these days. Yeah, but it is, but, it, but it's a good sign, though. A, a one and two ratio for a player who doesn't take penalty kicks is good. Do we think Ramirez can maybe be a 20-goal-a-season striker for us? But there's a rate he will be. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, exactly. I don't see why not. Um, yeah, Gavin's absolutely right. If you, if you extrapolate this out, why not? And if, he can, yeah, if we can get into a better flow as a team and more of an attacking threat, then, yeah, I would say he, he could be. His finishing looks pretty tidy. But bearing in mind, you know, new country, new league, etc. as well. So uh, I think that probably makes it a little bit more impressive what he's accomplished to date. So, um, yeah, I'm optimistic. I, I, I've got a screenshot. I've got a screenshot from the beginning of the season of Jet at the back of the Evening Express announcing he's going to get 20. I'm fairly confident Ramirez might hit 20 before him. If we can set up a system that accentuates Ramirez's strengths and not one that where his weaknesses are highlighted, then absolutely. And to me, to you guys, I think to the vast majority of Aberdeen fans who go and watch the games, they'll know that that involves at least one, if not two players, very close to him, creating space that allows him to focus essentially on what he's naturally very good at, which is finishing. Um, I think he's pretty limited as far as everything else goes, but there's a goal scorer there. I think I'm I'm very convinced about that now. And yeah, it's up to uh, it's up to the management and the team around him to put him in, into those situations where that can happen. Yeah, and I know this is not important really in the grand scheme of things, but he seems like a good egg as well. He seems like he's kind of embraced the, the move to Aberdeen. Is trying to really get what it's all about, and from that perspective alone, I kind of really w- want him to succeed. Um, and you're right, Gav, he's got limitations, absolutely. In the same way that a guy like Adam Rooney 
had limitations. Um, I'm not going to get into comparison between Rooney and Ramirez, but I do. I feel comfortable. I feel a bit more confident now that if we can create chances for Ramirez, they'll they'll get put away. I look at the goal last week at Dens, which was a really really tough finish at a tight angle. Um, I look at the goal. Yes, that's a player on confidence deciding to hit that one the first time. He, he pulled off the defence, got himself into a good position, didn't panic with it, placed it nicely behind the uh, beyond the keeper. Great goal. The, the goal as a whole was actually fantastic. Brown wins it back in the centre of the park. A really nice, pacey counter-attack from us, which was a little bit more the pattern of play from us yesterday as well, which was good to see. Um, I'll, I'll come on to it a bit later on, but... I felt we were a lot more direct in our attacking play. When I say that, I don't mean that in the sense of playing long balls. I mean in the sense of we were getting the ball at the park quicker through the lines. You saw it with that goal. Brown does really well. He's also been watching Charlie Adam take the piss out of him the week before with a little step over. Great ball up to Ramsey. This is also the benefit of the system that we played. It was giving Ramsey the freedom to get up the line without having to necessarily worry too much about getting back all the time. Um, it's a shame that Ramsey had to go off injured because I would have really liked to see what he could have done in that system as the game wore on. It's a great goal all around and the type of thing we've been just, I guess, expecting almost in a way when we've been looking for glass ball to, to kick in this season. Yeah, well, the pleasing thing, especially as we've seen situations, whether it's, I don't know, Samuels or, um, you know, even Ramsey, McKenzie, they're not exempt from this. Players, wide players getting into positions on the byline and not really picking up the head and just firing it either into defenders or goes out for a throw-in or whatever. It was, it's a great ball by Scott Brown and Ramsey has the awareness to just take a little look up, sees Ramirez has held his run, which again, Ramirez I think has been guilty of this as well, maybe not um, being too clever with his runs and just you know, going into where all the bodies are. Um, yeah, Ramsey has that awareness, lifts his head, pulls it back, Ramirez is an acre of space and like you say, it's the kind of finish that, that could easily go over the Merklin stand, but he gets his head over it, converts, beautiful goal, beautiful. And I know, I know, Gav, this is going to, you know, you, you were critical last week about the work or lack thereof as you were seeing it from Alan Russell. Stephen Glass talked about the fact they've been working on that move all week. The idea about Ramirez peeling off towards that kind of penalty spot area, they've been working on getting Ramsey down the line, cutting it back into that sort of position. Um, you're right as well. Ramirez made a good decision to hold back. Again, I think that comes from the fact he had somebody else up there with him. Watkins does a really, really good unselfish job pulling basically three Hibs players towards him in the penalty box allowing Ramirez to step back now if Ramirez is the only guy in the penalty box he kind of almost probably feels naturally and you'll know this yourself having played football not even to this sort of level when you're the only guy in the box you kind of feel you have to be in around everybody else because that's where the ball is naturally going to go if somebody else is up there and I think <clears throat> Ojo makes a really good overlapping run on the outside of Watkins as well which kind of just takes the right back not out of the game completely but he's in two minds there about whether he wants to mark Ojo or go with Watkins it frees up that space and if that is something they've been working on in training all week that's also a really good progression from what we've seen in the last few weeks um allow me to take the uh, politician's mantra and say that I don't recall talking about Alan Russell last week but looking through the rest of the team as well I'm going to go to the back three now because our defense and I'm going to include actually the goalkeeper in this as well. They've come under a lot of criticism this season, um, and rightly so. Let's let's not pretend otherwise. I was dead pleased to see Joe Lewis back in the starting lineup on Saturday. Um, anyone that listened to our show last week will know that I was extremely critical of Gary Woods and his role in the two goals at Dens Park. For me, Gary Woods is is not good enough to be the number one goalkeeper at Aberdeen. End of. I was delighted to see Joe Lewis come back into the team. 
delighted for him he got a clean sheet on his return and I thought he looked pretty assured across the 90 minutes that said Hibbs didn't really threaten I don't think he had a save to make actually um, but did what he had to do well when he was asked to do it that'll be a massive confidence boost to him as well yeah I mean with the exception of I can't remember if it was Jamie Murphy or Scott Allen putting a ball in and he kind of flapped at it a little bit um, and then I think he took a hit from McCrory or Nisbet I can't quite remember he took like three hits in a row in about a 10 minute space of time but yeah, otherwise, I mean, assured, did all his work well, even with the ball at his feet. Thought it looked pretty good. I'm, I've said it on this show, the benefit of Gary Woods being quote-unquote better with the ball at his feet than Joe Lewis doesn't outweigh the benefits of Joe Lewis being just all-round a better goalkeeper. And yeah, like yourself, I was very happy to see him back in. Happy to see him get a, a good reception um, when he came out for the second half and... Uh, Hopefully it'll be a confidence builder and he can uh, he can build on as well, uh, individually as well as, as the team. Yeah, that absolutely would echo everything that you've you've both said. Joe Lewis is a very good goalkeeper who, you know, unfortunately maybe hasn't been playing to the best of the you know sort of ability we know we know he's got. So it's good to see him back. Good to see him keep a clean sheet. Uh, you know, first and foremost because that's what the team needs. But you know, on a personal level, you don't. You don't really want to see any of your players poor form or struggling and fans getting on the back. It's it's a much better place to be when we can come out of pathology and be like, yep, good result. And by the way, all of those guys today were good. That's great. That, that's a much better place to be in. So really pleased for him. And yeah, just actually really pleased for, well, I was going to say the defence, but the way the game changed, the defences that we actually deployed over the match, um, that's just really good. And I, I think, I don't think any of us have ever said this. You know, you saw some of the garbage that's been in the, the paper around players maybe not liking the manager or there's a rift and all that kind of crap. I, I personally, obviously, I, I have no ends. I have no idea. All I see on the pitch, I, I've never seen guys that looked like they didn't get on or weren't playing or weren't trying for whatever reason, just wasn't working. But with the way the game went and the way, you know, they, they all got through it, to me, that's a pretty clear sign that that's just that's just a guy who had a column deadline and he decided that's what he was going with today in order to get something in the paper because if there, any, if there was any truth to that, I don't think you can pull together a result like that in the run we've been in with everything that happened in the matches with injuries and guys unavailable from the start if people aren't listening to what they've been told to do and putting in a good shift. I mean, it clicked on Saturday, but I think that just highlights the fact that you know, everyone is on the same page. It just hasn't been working for whatever reason to date. I was going to leave this actually, but I think, Graeme, you, you've spoken about this, so I think it's important we talk about it now. In a really weird way, I know that we were all quite, not necessarily critical um, on last week's show about Dave Cormack's appearance on, on the radio. I think maybe slightly bemused and maybe a bit critical about the way he decided to do it. I wonder in a really weird way if it's maybe actually worked out for us. Because it has created, if nothing else, a little bit of that siege mentality all over again, where there's a belief that people are out to get us. Whether that's the case or not is, is neither here nor there. I've not really heard, if I'm brutally honest, I've not really seen much in the traditional Glasgow media really ripping into us too much. Not as much as I would have expected, actually, given the run of form we were on, but that's that's by the by. And in a really weird way, that I, I take it, Graeme, you were referring to that article that was the Frank McIverney one talking about you know, he's heard that there are 
senior players in the squad who don't like the manager and all this type of stuff. I, that yeah, that that is the one, and I don't see any evidence of that personally. We'll, we'll talk, we may as well talk about it now. I saw a team that was defiant, that was battling to get the victory, um, that were resolute, that stood up to what was put in front of them, especially given the injuries that happened as well. I saw a team fighting for each other across the pitch. Um, obviously, Ramirez and Scott Brown went over to Stephen Glass after Ramirez scores. Um, it maybe would have been good to see some more people going over as well, but never mind. After the game, there was a bit of unity again. The team kind of came around and did the whole round, you know, went around the whole stadium and all that kind of good stuff. It looked to me like a team that's together. It looked like a team that was fighting for their manager. The one thing I would say about the Frank McIverney thing is, well, A, normally, given who the source was, McIverney, I would say that's a little bit nonsense. The only thing that makes me go, I'm a bit concerned about that, is who that source would most likely have been. And it's all, it's very well known who Frank McIverney's pals are on the Open Goal podcast. If that type of nonsense is coming through Derek Ferguson, for example, then that's the type of thing that needs to be nipped in the bud very, very quickly. Because that hurt, that doesn't help anybody. And I'm not saying that's exactly where it came from, but if I was a betting man, that would be the that would be the situation I'll take from. But in a really weird way, all this chat maybe has just actually fired up the team, has fired up the manager, has fired up the club in a way. I, I don't know, I felt a little bit of that a bit on Saturday, Gav, a bit of defiance even in the red shed about this. This is not gonna we're not gonna have the 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 rep taken out of us on this now. And it's almost us against the world in a in a weird, weird sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not going to be on here casting aspersions that Lewis Ferguson has said something and that's where this has all come from. I never said Lewis Ferguson. I said I know, dad. but that's, you know, when you connect the dots, that's where it all leads back to. Um, and that's it's the beauty of journalism in many ways, that like you can just say something and then say, well, I can't read all my sources. So it's shite, it's nothing, it's, you know page fillers, clickbait, whatever the fuck. Um, I did not see any sign, as Graham said, of a team that are disconnected from the manager, which is something I expressed, you know, concern about last week. Um, I did see a team fighting for one another. And the reaction, the celebration at the end of the game implies to me that the, the team are, in fact, still behind the management. And yeah, I mean, I made mention this last week that had things gone badly, the red shed could have been, you know, almost our our worst, our own worst enemy. Um, but you're right, yeah, the, it was there. Um, in terms of the support, in terms of the backing, like yourself, I don't know if this everyone's out to get us thing is actually reality. But hey, if actually works in our favor, then you know, let's let's create our own reality in that sense. What more can I say? It's just yeah, it was a hugely positive, hugely encouraging reaction to the very difficult spell we've been having as of late. The the back three of um, Galka, Bates and McCrory, I thought, on the whole, were excellent. Galka obviously had to go off um, injured after just, just before halftime. It's the most composed I've seen Galker in his entire time here. It's what we've been crying out for, playing at the centre of a three, which is what he's done for Scotland. I think that's what suits his strengths as a player. He can be a bit more of a kind of penalty box defender playing that way he doesn't have to worry too much about playing the ball and he's got two other guys either side of him who can play I thought David Bates was excellent on Saturday um, won pretty much all of his challenges distribution with the ball at his feet was pretty good strode out with the ball a couple of times bullied Kevin Nisbet a couple of times on the ball thought he was excellent hope that is a a good positive move going forward I'm going to single this guy out especially because he's 
he's a guy who seems to have come under a lot of criticism this season. And I'm not entirely sure why, because I actually think he's growing into the role. And I've said it before in this podcast. I thought Ross McCrory was right up there with Marley Watkins from my top Don at the weekend. I thought Ross McCrory was superb on the whole. Completely agree. One slack back pass aside. Yes. You know, clearly put into that position uh, the left of the back three, presumably because A, probably the best footballer out of the three, and his athleticism allows him to, you know, compete with Martin Boyle. So that's 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 a really positive as well that we clearly identified a threat from Hibbs and, you know, implemented a solution to deal with him. I'm going to praise Stephen Glass as well here for this one because when Gallagher goes off and he has to make the substitution there, it would have been very, very, very easy for him to decide at that point to switch to a back four and go with uh, McCrory and Bates, go with Hayes at left back and go with Ojo at right back, which would have been, you know, a bit scary, but he could have easily done that. But I think that we would have suffered from making that change in formation at that point in the game. I know we later shifted to back four, but we also went with a five in midfield at that point. So it kind of balanced itself out. Moving Scott Brown into the middle of the back three, whilst it looked incredibly unusual, was very, very effective. Um, I thought Scott Brown did brilliantly in there, marshalling the two younger lads, the experienced lads, but still younger lads alongside them. Might even be a position in there for Scott Brown in the future, possibly, as a, as a sweeper. Possibly. I think Glass has made mention that he has played that role for Celtic. It's maybe not a position that he wants to play in, but you know, in terms of prolonging his career and using his experience in a way that benefits the team, then yeah, it's something we can definitely look at. I know he was pushed back into midfield um, later in the game. I think it was more or less put on a man-marking job on, um, on Scott Allen. But um, yeah, I thought he was very good when he went back into that back three and uh, Something, again, we've maybe just fallen into through circumstance, but yeah, gives the manager something to think about. Unable to attend, so, you know, so from catching up with you guys and the highlights and stuff like that, and, you know, just looking around, yeah, it's just good to see under trying circumstances, guys doing a good job, and not necessarily jobs you'd expect them to do, but just getting it done. Um, so it's just really, it's really pleasing that we've, We've done that. And the, the only other point I would say, which is not necessarily around the, the system, is I saw you know, quite a, a mixed response to the chairman's interview, spe- specifically around trying to create that siege mentality. So it's not something I really get, but I've never, ever been you know, in a dressing room as a club when you feel like you're being attacked from the outside. So maybe there is something in creating it and maybe, maybe people do respond to it so it's probably a little bit too early to say yeah that's the catalyst for for three points but i didn't think there was anything to it but but maybe there absolutely maybe there absolutely is i'm just going to give scott brown actually a lot of kudos i was very critical of him i think we all were um on last week's episode feeling that you know we were maybe expecting a lot more of him especially in the last few weeks i thought on saturday he was was very very good back to the kind of level we'd expect captain's performance did well like i say when he moved back in the back three did well marshalling in front of them when he went when we went back to the four um, and, and looked after Scott Allen. Oh no, good performance from Scott Brown. More of that, please. Let's continue with that vein of form. I think, you know, Gav, we, we both you and I were at the game. In a really weird way, it was kind of almost exactly the type of game, the exact type of performance that the club needed in a weird way. Not, we, we, we you know, the data will show that we were out 
possessed. Hibs had more possession. Um, but what we saw was when we had the ball, we were very effective with it on the whole. Um, I talked on it earlier on. We were much more direct in our attacking play. And again, when I say that, I don't mean long balls. Moving through the lines much quicker. Players breaking the lines. Marley Watkins and Ryan Hedges actually carrying the ball. O- Ojo as well to an extent at some points during the game. Resilient at the back. Solid at the back on the whole. Against a, a, a pretty potent Hibs attack. You know, that, let's not pretend otherwise. They're a, they're a good attacking outfit, usually, Hibs. All in all, kind of almost like the antithesis of what we've been trying to do all season, but in a really weird way, showed exactly what we need out of this football club. Showed that resilience, showed that defiance, showed a bit of solidity. Gives me a lot more hope about going into this run of fixtures we've got coming up now. Yeah, I think we spoke about this at the game, um, maybe about 20 minutes into the second half when Hibs were mostly kind of knocking the ball side to side around in front of our midfield, thinking that, you know, well, don't really fancy this for the next 25 minutes. And with that being said, you know, Hibs have got, you know, Kevin Nisbet's a moaning wee prick, but he's, you know, he's a he's, he's a decent striker. He's got, he's scored goals for Hibs. We've talked, you know, ad nauseum about the threat Martin Boyle poses, and they've got other attacking threats as well. But, you know, Joe Lewis has not had a save to make. And yeah, we clearly have worked on this, the shape to reduce the amount of space in behind um, our defence that wouldn't allow their faster players to get on get, get on the end of um, on balls and it's something was not expected absolutely and all the credit in the world has to go for the manager the management team and the players um, from Joe Lewis all the way up to Ramirez because everyone put in a shift that day you're just sat here thinking it's just a little unfortunate the next two games because yeah you could look at that game and that result and think that's something that you can then kick on and hopefully get yourself like a little string of results and you know suddenly the league table looks a lot healthier but um it's not how it works in scottish football and we move on to the next game and it's going to be another huge challenge yeah so before we move on to the the previews of the next couple of games uh gav graham this is maybe a difficult one for you to answer because you weren't at the game but top dons for you on saturday um as i said earlier marley watkins absolutely superb and yeah ross mccrory yeah, I, I find it difficult to split Watkins and McCrory. I thought Watkins was was excellent, really just provided that link we're missing out on. If I'm honest, I don't think any of the 11 um, who played the majority of the game, I'm not going to include Ramsey in this because he went off after 20 minutes. Um, 11 or 12, really, I guess, because I, I thought that Longstaff did okay when he came on. I, th- I still think he was a bit hurried in his play, a bit rushed, but I don't know if that's because actually he's trying to play passes, expecting people are going to be in positions and they're not. Not too sure. Judy's still out there. Thought Hayes did well when he came on as well. Uh, for me, between McCrory and Watkins, I'm going to give it to McCrory because he's he's come under a lot of flack this season. I think undeservedly so. I think he's actually been he's he's actually been doing okay. Um, thought he was really really good at the weekend. So more of that, please. Let's move on to the previews. So Wednesday night, Aberdeen's first trip to Glasgow this season to visit Mordor and Rangers away. What are we expecting? What are we hoping for? What we're thinking? Well, what we're hoping for is the unlikeliest of uh, results um, dating back to about last week. What we're expecting, um, well, I don't know about you guys, but yeah, a huge challenge. One game of being solid at the back does not prove that we've suddenly cracked that. Rangers, I say begrudgingly, have got a lot of attacking talent um, all the way from the back to the, uh, to the forward areas. So yeah, huge challenge, huge test of character. Huge test to the management team, and yeah, it'll 
in some ways it'll show how far off we are from being where we want to be. A win would be fantastic. One good game doesn't, yeah, you're absolutely right. We've had a good, good performance and a good result on Saturday. That doesn't mean it's all, it's all under control now. Because generally speaking, with the odd exception, it doesn't really matter what sort of form we're in. We generally don't do particularly well. Then, then you're right. They've got a decent amount of firepower. So, I, what I would really like to see is, you know, just don't don't fall apart. Go down, compete, and hopefully, you know, even if we maybe don't get the result. If we can look at a performance, I think, you know what, that has much improved on how we have performed against, you know, the lesser teams that we faced to date, then maybe that does start to give us something to build from. I know you might, people might say, you know, it's another defeat. And yeah, I'll be saying that. But if we can say, beat Hebs, decent form three points, and actually sort of stood up to Rangers, you know, we're, we're not quite there, but that was a better performance than we've seen to date. Maybe it does start to feel like the, t- the tide has turned a little bit, but it's going to be it's going to be difficult as it as it always is. I mean, there's going to be some mitigating circumstances, I guess, though, for Wednesday night. Um, Jack McKenzie undoubtedly will not be in the team on Wednesday night. Declan Garker, Calvin Ramsey, huge question marks over those two. I mean, they, they both reappeared again and sat on the bench after coming off, but I'd be surprised if we see either of those two playing on Saturday. Um, sorry, on Wednesday. Marla Watkins... Took a few knocks on Saturday. Um, hopefully he will be fit and will be will be good to go. Um, it's going to be a pretty depleted side, I think, we end up putting out on Wednesday night, which does beg a lot of questions about what we might expect in terms of lineup, system, etc. What we try to do. I mean, I, I I will absolutely right now. I would take a nil-nil draw any day of the week, twice on Sunday, on Wednesday if we could if we could get that because I just think with the injuries we're facing especially in the defensive areas of the pitch as well, it, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to, to to keep a clean sheet, I think. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. It's If we go there with every single player available, then it's still a huge test. Um, so you wonder, I mean, I, Stephen Glass doesn't have the credit in the bank to go down there and basically write the game off. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, it's, yeah, it'll be very challenging and, yeah, like, let's say um, I don't want to sit on this podcast and start giving credit out to those at Ibrox, but you know, Morelos always turns on against us. Well, let's not. I mean, let's let's look at it as more objectively, I guess, as well. Rangers struggled a bit today to get a two-one victory at St. Marin. Well, I was just going to say we're just going to bring up. You know, I don't think they did any significant business in the summer that I can think of. Um, so when you look through their league form, it's seven wins out of ten, two draws, and one defeat. 17 goals scored and eight conceded. So they're not, it's not the Rangers of last year. We can say that. No, it's absolutely not. Yeah. Whether they worked so much to achieving that goal of stopping 10 in a row for Celtic and securing that title has made them take their eye off the ball. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in that dressing room. Their run in Europe has been Meh. pretty mixed. It's, it's, you know, it's a good 2-0 win against Bromby last week, but um, you know, that's, that's, I, I can't speak to, the level that Bromby have these days. No matter what, it's always a game Rangers want to win. It's always a game Aberdeen want to win. Objectively, yeah, I'd be looking at this with maybe a degree more optimism if we had our strongest 11 going down there, but that's not going to be the case. We just need to set up in such a way that we can be difficult to beat and difficult to score against. And like Graham says, maybe a defeat. That might happen, but if we can come away with it with a performance we can look at and say, 
you know what, there's encouraging signs in there. Maybe that's a win in itself. I mean, the thing for me I'm hoping for is that Rangers have not been, they've, they've not been blowing teams away in the same way that they kind of were last season at all. They've, they've kind of been struggling a bit more. I, I also wonder as well, I, I thought this last season that I think Rangers benefited, benefited to an extent greater than would be expected from there being no supporters in the stadiums. And I don't mean that actually in the sense of their away form, I actually mean it in their home form. We all know what Ibrox can be like if you can get there and you can set your stall out and you can keep a clean sheet for 60, 70 minutes, how quickly the, the support that Ibrox can turn and the pressure that puts on teams, it puts on Rangers teams. And I'm not entirely convinced that they have a lot of characters in their side to deal with that type of pressure. It was I, I feel like it was easier for them last season when that pressure wasn't there. Plus the fact that Celtic completely imploded on them helped no ends because they had no real pressure. They could lose about five games at one point last season and it didn't make a jot of difference whether they were going to win the league or not. I, I can only assume our tactic on Wednesday night is going to be to go there, to try and keep it tight, to try and frustrate. A positive for us is probably the likes of Ryan Kent, I think are still likely to be missing. So that does take a, a, a significant attacking threat out of, the, out of their team still leaves you with the likes of Morelos and Roof. Um, and as much as it pains me to say it, obviously they are guys who tend to turn on against us. Uh, but you never know. It, it, maybe the performance on Saturday just does instill a bit of belief, a bit of defiance in us. Backs against the wall even further with the injuries we have. We can maybe go down there and get a result. I'm interested to see what how we line up system-wise. Um, I wonder if we might see a back three with Scott Brown as the, the sitting centre-half. Well, as we sit here now, I mean, um, let's play, you know, hypotheticals. Perhaps Scott Brown, the back three with um, with David Bates and Ross McCrory, two guys who hopefully will want to go there and uh, improve something. Maybe Johnny Hayes and Ojo in the wing-back areas because, bless him, but I don't want Jack Gurr anywhere near our first team. And, you know, midfield three and perhaps, I don't know. I don't know if it's the kind of game that, if we want to keep it tight, do we take hedges on? Because I don't. Hedges is not lazy. I'm not. I'm not calling him. Like, I'm not calling him. You know, a passenger in terms of defensive work. But it's not his natural game. It's not something he's pretty great at. Um, Watkins, you know, he'll run all day. That's fine by me. So I don't know who you quite maybe put up there with him. Do you maybe put someone like Samuels in there? I mean, if it was me, I think I would go with what you've talked about there. I think I would put McGeech in alongside Ferguson. Uh, I would, I would probably keep Hedges in. I think in games like that, you need ball carriers. I think you need guys who can get their foot in the ball, they can take the ball, they can relieve some pressure at the back. I would keep the front three. I would keep Hedges, Watkins, Ramirez, just even to allow you to get the ball at the park, hold it, give the, the defensive guys a bit of a breather. Um, you can always then take out Ramirez or Watkins for a Samuels, for example, later in the game, if you just want to pump balls over the back and, and look for somebody to chase onto them. That would be the way I would go. I mean, what do I know, apart from the fact that I've been saying to play three at the back now for weeks? Uh, it's, it's going to be a tough ask on, on Wednesday night. I, I'm kind of almost in the camp a little bit, but I, with the injuries we've had, I'm not going to say I write it off, but I'm not expecting much, but at the same time, I don't think it's a season-defining game for us. It's maybe less of a season-defining game because it, you know, the rot has been stopped. I guess it's a clean slate if you like. If we lose, it's when well, it's one and one and two or however far back you want to go. So I know I know what you mean. It's difficult to see what we can maybe do 
mainly actually around the fact that you can't put out a winning team again because the, the players aren't available. It's really difficult to know what, I mean, if he, you know, you're talking about maybe what do you do? Do you have hedges or do you not? It's kind of like if you've got none of these guys, you're kind of raising the, you know, the, the white flag at the start and saying, we're, we, you know, we've got no attacking threat, so just come at us, boys. And it doesn't matter who you are, it's difficult to defend for 90 minutes if you offer no threat. So you kind of, I feel like you've got to have, yeah, if, if we're just shelling the ball up to relieve the pressure, it's just going to come straight back at us. We've got some like hedges who can maybe draw a foul, just dribbles up the pitch, get a better respite, maybe just get a better foothold in the game further up the pitch. That's a better chance for success, in my opinion, than us just hoping we can absorb pressure for 90 minutes and get a set piece or something like that. So I, I think you have to go for that. I know what you mean he's by no means lazy, but yeah, it's not his game. So by the time he realises, oh, actually I should have been tracking that guy, the guy's on his way, uh, you know, Hedges will chase him back, but you've lost that, you know, second or so where the guy's actually away and played a pass and you maybe should have been there. But I feel like you've got to have some sort of threat up front. Otherwise, the, the opposition just know you're there for the, the taking. And the interesting dilemma for this one as well is going to be, obviously we don't know how serious Ramsey and Gallagher's injuries are, but what I'm interested to see is if, if either of those two are actually possibly able to make the first team for Wednesday, whether the management team as well will take a view of actually it'd be better for the two of them to be available for the Hearts game on Saturday and we take the chance at Ibrox. And the reason I say that is because, as we all know, <clears throat> generally speaking, football games get, you know, resolved on budgets and all that kind of good stuff and the team with the inverted comma better players generally will prevail more times than not there's a chance you put our best 11 out at Ibrox on a Wednesday night and we still possibly get beat anyway that's not what I want to happen don't get me wrong I want us to win every single game but just looking at it realistically that's something that can happen do you run the risk of potentially injuring these guys <clears throat> further by trying to rush them back into a game where if you left them till maybe Saturday they've got a better chance of making it in and is, in a way, the Hearts game actually a more important game to us? Every game's important, but um, to me, you've got to take a more long-term approach to things. If we're talking fitness tests on Wednesday, then I'd say, you know what, just leave it. Um, we've got a squad of players, the manager, the board, whoever it is that's in charge of recruitment, still, still undecided, um, put their faith in this group, and we have to hope that people will stand up and be counted. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's there's a long way to go in the season. The young guys, maybe risking them for one game and that puts them back two, three games. You know, you're in this cycle of rushing them back and then they're not available. And then actually you, they're available for fewer games than they could have been if you'd maybe just taken that pain early on and let them, you know, sit out a game or two. So I think I would probably go down that route as well. If it was a cup game, I'd probably be saying the opposite. I'd be saying, look, just chuck them in. If they break, you know, you, you need to get into the next round of the cup. That's the, the priority. But I would probably be cautious. And if, yeah, if we're talking about tests that late, I'm not so sure it's worth the risk in the bigger picture, given that there are many games left of the season. Let's not try and run the... Just don't take the risk that you actually lose them for a prolonged period, because then you really are in a spot bother. I'm not going to ask for predictions for Wednesday night, but let's move on to Saturday, um, a home fixture against Hart. So the first visit of... I'll, I'll give a prediction for Wednesday. Okay, go on then, Gav, go on. 5-0. Excellent. 4? 5-0. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. Saturday sees the first visit of 
Robbie Nielsen's shithouse Hearts to Pitondre <laughs> this season. Uh, hearts going all right, actually, this season so far. Um, sitting up at the top of the table. I think they're second after today's results. Uh, for me, this is the bigger match of the week. Um, and I'm interested to see how we actually fare against uh, Hearts because these are the teams, Hearts, Hibs, <clears throat> United, who expect us to be there or thereabouts with at the, at the end of the season. Thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, I, I didn't actually realise, to be quite honest, that Hearts are unbeaten. Yeah, unbelievable. Five wins, five draws. I mean, it's credit where credit is due. Robbie Nielsen, he's piece pulled right out of the bag here with this lot. Um, what do we expect? I mean, this is one that, this is different. I know what I want and what I expect. And that is the, as you said, shithouse hearts team to come up here and make this a physical battle and try and take it away from us in that sense. Um, listen, I mean, as I said, 10 games undefeated. 16 goals scored, 7 conceded. They've been in great form, and it'll be another huge challenge. Like you say, as I just said, every game's important. But you kind of wish almost that this was the game we're going into next, rather than Rangers. Because um, like I say, you know, you know what you're going to get from Hearts. And I think player for player, personally, we've got a very competitive squad against them. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully, again, we can just uh, show some savvy, show some solidity, and... Walk away with three points. This is the rare occasion where I'll call for Jet and maybe just get the Hearts players bringing back flashbacks at 45 minutes at Tynecastle where he absolutely ruined them. It's going to be really tough. Yeah, you you do know what you're going to get. Although admittedly, the, the game at the start of the season, I didn't think they were quite as physical as they have been in the past. That's not to say they were giving it the old tiki-taka, but they weren't <laughs> quite... <laughs> As, uh, as brutal as they have been in the past. But at the end of the day, they're 10 games in, they're sitting for a reason, their form's pretty tidy. I don't think... It's going to be difficult. I don't think Hearts will come up here to be open. No. Uh, you know, do you know what I mean? So th- I, I think they're going to be difficult to play against, as they always are, and they're playing well. That doesn't help us. But like the like, so Hebs maybe did help us because Hebs are a bit softer at the back, so that was probably not a bad game to have at home. Hearts are going to be opposite. And I feel like we might be in this cycle of it's just we're not great at breaking teams down. And that's what we're going to have to do on Saturday. I mean, we're all saying they're playing well. I mean, they drew at home with Dundee yesterday. Um, and I know, don't get, I know someone's going to go, well, we got beat by Dundee two weeks ago. What's that phrase? Pot kettle? Yeah, but if you're a team at the top end of the table, whose hearts are on the, you know, they're unbeaten they've got aspirations to try and push on to, you know, even challenge um, for the title. A draw at home against Dundee is not a good result. Um, and I did read a, a lot yesterday from a lot of Hearts fans who were not happy with the way that they played against Dundee. So... I'll rephrase it. They're playing better than us. Okay. This is my weird thing, though. I've not, I've not seen a lot of Hearts this season, because why would I? But what I saw from them when we played them at Tynecastle, was, I wasn't particularly impressed by them. I thought... First half, they were okay, niggly, the usual. Second half, I thought we absolutely battered them um, and were unlucky not to to take three points uh, in that one. Obviously, they went to Ibrox and got a good draw. It's what it is. I'm, I'm not convinced Rangers are in particularly good form at the moment either, although they're up at the top of the table. They're not in the same... They're not playing the same way they were last season. But it's going to be an interesting one, I think, um, next Saturday. Again, I think it depends on personnel we have available to us. I think we can probably all predict now what we'll expect from Hearts. They're not going to come up here and play 
an expansive brand of football. It's going to be a difficult, niggly game, I imagine. I reckon one or, you know, the first goal is going to be really critical in this one. Um, that was a massive thing for us on Saturday, just getting the first goal. And it's the first time we've been ahead in a game, I think, since, well, St. Mirren away. Um, but before that would have been Dundee United, I think, open day of the season. I would think so, because... That we scored first in a game, even. Um, yeah. So, and you can see how much that gave confidence to the team and how much it gave us something to defend, which is a massive thing. I think against Hearts a week on Saturday, I think the first goal will be critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've given ourselves way too many mountains to climb. Um, like you say, it's essential. Um, we know what Hearts will do if they score first. Yeah. And yeah, and we know the uh, the position of strength that it will give us if we can get that first goal. I think it's unfair to try and do predictions for next Saturday just because we've got no idea what our team looks like off the back of Wednesday night. We've got no idea on any of that. All I'm going to say is I'm hoping for something in the region of three points out of these two games, whatever way around that comes. I think all I'd say about this game with Hearts is what I kind of want to see from us because I do think Hearts will come up here and be in the same way that we were hoping for Hibs and not Hibs. <laughs> I think we can all expect Hearts, not, you know, silky, fluid, ticky-taka football Hearts. Has that ever existed? No, that's never existed. I don't know. But I bring it back to a game. It was um, two years ago. Hearts' first game of the season. Ryan Hedges scored. Yeah, yeah. The winner. And that day, it was one of those false dawns um, that we kind of have had the last couple of years where opening few games, you're looking at it and really feeling really positive about what you're seeing. And that day, we went 1-0 up and then Hearts got two quick goals and they became Hearts. It was, you know, niggly fouls, cynical fouls trying to wind our players up, time-wasting, all the usual things you'd expect from them. And that day, our players didn't rise to it once. And we just kept playing the way we wanted to play. And in the end, we got our rewards for it. So the lesson I want to take from that game is just for the team just to believe in themselves, believe in the way they want to play. And yeah, we will get the rewards if we do that. Yeah, let's just hope we get a decent crowd, get a decent atmosphere and get behind the team. And hopefully the team gives us something back and vice versa. And that's enough to get us over the line. I'm not expecting it to be pretty, but if we get something out of the game, I'm probably not going to be too bothered. Let's, let's hope we can just get something out of the game. And um, I wouldn't say capitalising the momentum we've built up, but maybe just leaves us all feeling a little bit happier about the situation we're in a couple of weeks down the line than where we were prior to Saturday. So other news from Patoja this week. No game for the women's team, but congratulations are in order for Jenna Penman, Jessica Broderick and Ava Thompson, who all featured for the Scotland under-19s in their doubleheader against Ukraine and Austria in their European Championship qualifiers, with Jessica Broderick captaining the side in both games. And it's back to SWPL Cup duty for the Dons next week as Hibs visit the Balmoral on the 31st of October for the SWPL Cup. And the young team, a thumping 8-0 victory for Barry Robson's young team over Banks D in the second round of the SFA Youth Cup at Cormac Park. Robson keeping faith in the side who started the 3-3 draw against Rangers the week prior, meaning the Dons lined up with 10 16-year-olds and 17-year-old Finn Yeats making up the 11 goals from Yeats, Towler, doubles from Harvey and Emsley, so averaging six goals to the good at half-time. 
Credit to Banks of D who kept going in the second half and restricted the Dons to only two more strikes, this time through Duncalf and Marshall, as the Dons ran out the game comfortably, with Barry Robson even able to bring on 14-year-old Lancelot Pollard, what a name, who impressed in his 30 minutes on the pitch. Huge congratulations also due to Aberdeen's Alfie Babbage, who was part of the Scotland under-16 setup that retained the victory shield following the tournament in Belfast. Babbage netting in the Scots 2-0 victory over Wales, and getting the only goal in the win over Ireland. And on to Lone Watch, Kevin Hanrati and Tyler McKaita both retained their spot in the starting lineup and played the full 90 minutes for Martin United in their Scottish Cup tie against Forth Athletic. And Mark Gallagher was a substitute for the Loons as they ran out 2-0 winners. Jack McIver started and scored as Huntley exited the Cup with a 4-1 defeat to Stenhouse Muir. No Tom Ritchie in the Huntley squad and having been recalled to Aberdeen ahead of last week's league fixture against Dundee, it might very well be that Huntley need to wait until January to call on Ritchie's services again. Jack Milne missed out altogether for Brecon City as they beat Haddington Athletic 2-1 to progress in the Cup. And it was the same for Connor Barron and Kieran Iguenu who both missed out as Kelty thumped Bucky Thistle 4-1 to progress to the third round. Michael Ruth started for Falkirk and played the full 90 minutes in their 0-0 draw at Peterhead in League One with Ryan Duncan missing out for Peterhead with injury. That was a statement, not a question, from Peterhead. And finally, Luke Turner kept his place in the starting lineup for Clifton Villas. They fell to their first defeat of the season, 1-0 at Ballymena, but they remained top of the Northern Irish Premier League with Linfield having a game in hand. Moving on, Fantasy Football League, my favourite part of the week. How's your week been, boys? Once again, bang average. 41 points. Um, my team has been hindered greatly by how utterly inept Hibs were. So <laughs> Martin Boyle and Kevin Nisbet have secured three points between them for myself. I feel your pain, Gab. I'm exactly the same as you. 37 points. Not great. Paul McGinn, two points as well. And I think that's, well, I don't know. Is that two points for being hoofed in the balls by Matty Longstaff? <laughs> It wasn't brilliant for me either. I had 40 points. And when I looked through my team, I didn't leave any points on the bench. But it's basically Ramirez, Watt and Boyce pretty much got all my points. So the other the other mob did nothing. <laughs> so yeah, I've slipped down the table big time this week again. I'm, I'm down 169th. Not good. Not good at all. Up at the top of the table, where the high flyers are, Jack Curran and his two turkeys... 55 points, 618 in total. So he's, he's romping ahead, 11 points clear now of, of GX's silly geese. So we've got a, a bit of a bird theme going on up at the top of the table. 607, and then I miss Kabamba, Keir Miller, 604. So it's getting them um, starting, you know, the, the, the top three are starting to stretch away a little bit. Big riser this week, zonal Marxism, Martin Stone, 62 points up to 588. Delighted to see the Queen's Eleven slipping back down the table again. Yeah, making way for the Kingdom of Morocco. <laughs> excellent, excellent week for him. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. 67, it's good, it's good. I had spotted a couple of names I really like. We've already spoken about Fred West Ham, but I just need to give them the, uh, a shout again because it's fucking great. Where is it? There was a really good one. And it's gone. I, have, I have to say for myself, Stuart Duncan, no folks given. Nice. That's, that's excellent. Like it, like it. Uh, to Madre S Un Colchon, 73rd, topical, given who we play on Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> you just got it. The GMS Swimming Club, 98th spot, again, topical, could have got 
Hearts coming up on Saturday. All good. Keep an eye on your fantasy football league. Teams, still some good prizes to be won at the end of the season. I'm just doing my bit by making sure that I can't possibly win it and there'll be a conflict of interest claimed. And so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for our exclusive interview with Paul Mason. And to play out the first half, we're delighted to bring you music from Best Girl Athlete with their track, In Your Head. Check out Best Girl Athlete on Twitter at Best Girl Athlete. And here's In Your Head.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by OGV Taproom. Developed by the team at OGV Energy, the OGV Taproom on Bridge Place Aberdeen boasts a fine selection of local and international craft beers, spirits and wines. Ideally located in the heart of the city, it's ideal for a pre-match beer or two, or even for a meeting or corporate event. To find out more, pop into OGV Taproom on Bridge Place Aberdeen or book online at ogvtaproom.com. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast, and we're delighted to bring you the latest in our line of exclusive, in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. And it's pretty much 32 years to the day since this man ensured his spot in the pantheon of Don's legends, grabbing a brace in that fantastic 1989 Skull Cup final against Rangers. It's every Aberdonian's favourite scouser. It's the one, the only, Paul Mason. Paul Mason, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? All good, all good, Gary, yes. Um, no complaints, all, all good here. So, Paul, we're delighted to have you on joining us today. We're going to have a chat through your football career and especially going to hone in, obviously, on your time with the Dons. And you were born in Liverpool, 1963. Was football always your first sporting love? Yeah, it was, Gary, yeah. Um, obviously, when you're young in Liverpool, um, your parents say to one, team, which was Everton in my case, it's either blue or red. Um, when I was four or five years of age, my dad took me to watch Everton Reserves. I'll never forget the lights uh, at Goodison Park on it, whatever evening it was. Um, it was Wednesday evening and seeing the football, and I thought uh, just that, that that memory was with me for a long time, you know, so uh, nice feeling. So obviously a boyhood Evertonian, who was your first footballing hero that you can remember? Um, I think it was Alan Ball. Um Although I didn't see much of him, it was just maybe um, he just at the end of his Everton career and whatever. But I just remember seeing Alan Ball and I'd be in the stands and I'd really, I'd, you know, seen him, see him on the pitch. And um, I remember he had these white boots, uh, white football boots that were quite uh, popular at the time. And obviously I wanted a pair for Christmas and whatever. So yeah, I'd say he's my first hero, yeah, Alan Ball, yeah. And just maybe talk us through your youth career, Paul. Am I right in thinking that you joined Everton at 16 as a youth player? Yeah, I did, Gary, yeah. Um, I played for Liverpool Schoolboys. That's like obviously the best in Liverpool right the way through um, my, my school days, under 11s, 12s, 13s, right to 16s. Um, and then when obviously when you get to 16, uh, clubs try to try to sign you. I remember one time some guy came up to me and uh, I played for my school team and I was about 15 years of age. And he's standing there like a scout. And at the end of the game, he, he wasn't trying to scout me nothing like that. He just told me. Um, he, he said to me, which is quite strange, but I was 15 years of age, and he said to me, I remember the words quite uh, vividly, he said, you're going to be a footballer. Um, if you want to be a footballer, uh, if you want to go to a team in the North, go to Man City, go to a team, uh, overall, that's best for youth, go to Crystal Palace. Hmm. So he sent me this when I was 15 years of age. So he wasn't when he wasn't from, from any particular club, I don't think. Um, and that's all that me- my memory was of, of saying that. Um, basically, if you want a chance of making it, go to them teams, them two teams. But obviously, I was an Everton fan. Um, I think Liverpool came in. I think Man United came in. But I was just waiting for Everton because I was just an Everton, you know. So um, and eventually, they did, did come in and then they signed me on it, like a year's whatever apprenticeship. 
And then am I right in thinking that, that everyone decided after that year they weren't going to keep you on? I mean, how big a blow was that for you to be told, you know, your boyhood team that, that, that they're going to let you go? I think at the time, I don't think it bothered me that much. I just think I think I was a bit too blase. I thought because um, I, I didn't go training, you're supposed to go training two or three times a week. Uh, at 16 years of age, there's other things on your mind, you know. Uh, you got friends, you got you know things that are happening. So I wasn't dedicated in that in that respect at 16 years of age. Um, I knew I'm not being big headed. I knew I had ability, but um, I just thought it would all come easy. But then um, you realise um, after six months with Everton, I was hardly training to be honest with you. Um, I didn't even know they released me, but my dad told me uh, got a letter saying um, Everton released you, and his words were go and prove them wrong. So, but at the time I remember, okay, yeah, but I wasn't that shocked because I said I was hardly training when I was so the dedication wasn't there on my part, you know. So, and ultimately, it's Liverpool's third team in Tranmere Rovers that pick you up, um, and you're there for again for now 12 months playing for the kind of youth and reserve sides, um, but then released again. And although you play some amateur football. Am I right in thinking it was a leg break at 18, the time out from that? That kind of seemed to maybe spell the end, I guess, at that point of your hopes for becoming a professional. Uh, yeah, definitely got it. Yeah, well put. Yeah, uh, you have a bit of time to think. You're 18 years of age, yeah, six, seven months in a plaster. Um, obviously, yeah, a lot of time to think, yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what it was, yeah. So um, I obviously lost my job as well. So um, I got to 19 years of age and uh, made the decision to go, to go abroad, looking for work, really. And I'm right in thinking it was you kind of made the decision to follow your brother over to the Netherlands to seek some some work. Is that right? Yeah, well, at least basically, spare. my brother's been he left home quite early in his younger days. Obviously, in Liverpool, wasn't much work. He's about five years older than me. He's lived in Spain for five, six years. Um, but at the time when I was just ready to leave myself, he just moved to Holland not long before. Um, well, on the border of Germany and Holland. So he's living over there and um, whatever work he's doing, insulation is called lagging. He mm-hmm. says, well, I thought I can pick that up. I wasn't skilled anything else. Um, the idea was to go do the same trade as him and pick it up in there. And that was that was the idea at first, yeah. And it's obviously while you're out there in Holland, you're playing for some local amateur teams that you grab the attention of FC Groningen scouts and eventually they invite you in for trials. I mean, did that move... Can I take you by surprise or had you kind of thought I'm doing well enough here in the amateurs that there might be a route back into the professional game if I kind of keep at it? Yeah, I think maybe in the back of my mind there was the idea, Gary, but playing football, obviously, whether it was amateur, even though I was working through the week, uh, I started playing amateur football. Uh, I think that was me, me hope, you know, but I, I still didn't expect it. Um, I wasn't there that long, three or four months, and they said, FC Groningen there, we'd like to invite you to train with them. And uh, yeah, um, that, that that came around. I, I'd say unexpectedly, and it was, you know, but uh, people were watching me when I didn't know about it. And impress, after you impressed on trial, you're given a 12-month reserve contract. Were you still labouring at that point? As well, are we able to kind of give that up to focus on the football? Uh, well, I wasn't doing, no, I wasn't saying there wasn't many jobs got wanted me to do. Uh, I was just basically they were paying for me, um, me digs, uh, and they give you the car to drive around and, and a bit of money to last year. But the money you get paid monthly, uh, mm. after every two weeks, I was borrowing the people I live with, like in a or like a lodger, I was borrowing money off them for two weeks to um, just to get me through the month, you know. So it wasn't great money. It was just like basically um, a chance a year in that reserve with 16, 18 lads um, trying to, you know, make it uh, and try and get it, you know, with the, with the first team. That was all my goal was, you know, but sometimes it's very lonely, um, very long days as well because you're not working sometimes. Um, you're training three or four days a week. It wasn't full-time either at the time. Um, but there was that little hope at the end of the tunnel that if I get through this year and do okay, there might be better uh, rewards at the end of it. 
Yeah, and you did more than okay. Continue to impress Gronigan, then offer you a, a three-year full-time professional contract. What was kind of going through your mind when they provide you with that offer after having kind of missed out in the professional game earlier on in your in your life? I'm just so proud, Gary, because I think, as, as you said before, after me um, Tramme, when Tramme released me, um, you just think it's, it's not going to be, you know? Um, so I did I did buckle down when I went to Holland, obviously. I think I grew up as well. You're on your own. you got to make a living. So from 19, when I went over there, Big Bad World was there then, you know? My friends weren't with me. Um, my family weren't with me. So I did a lot of growing up, I think. Um, and I just put my head down and sort of worked hard. I must have had the ability, again, I'm not saying I'm big either, but you need more than that to make it, you know? So you got to you have a bit of a work in your work rate and what have you. Uh, but when I, I got the, the contract the end, I just thought, I was really happy. But I never, I never sort of took anything for granted. I just thought, okay. Um, again, it was just, it wasn't great money again, not too much money, but uh, just I was just happy being a footballer rather than doing other jobs, you know, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you go on to become an established first team player in a Groningen side. It was beginning to become a bit of a force in Dutch football behind the kind of traditional big three clubs. Did you kind of feel that Dutch football and its style maybe suited you a little bit more than the English game did at that time or when you were younger? Or was it just a case of, like you say, you'd kind of knuckled down a little bit more? I think it did suit me, uh, Gary, yeah. Um, I think it was a lot more, I don't know, it wasn't as quick, uh, maybe a bit more space. Uh, I'm not too sure. Um, but when I eventually got into the first team, I started playing like a fullback, uh, fullback on paper, but I was like actually a attacking fullback. Um, yeah, it did shoot my game a hell of a lot, yeah. And I'm right in thinking that um, you're named by Marco van Basten, I think, in his like up and coming 11 players to look out for in Dutch football or something like that. Yeah, I, 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 people say, I don't, I don't think this is a, a true fact, but I've, I haven't read that one myself. I know Johan Cruyff, who's um, a legend before that, he's still playing in the last year when I just started. He mentioned about um, getting a team together and he mentioned me in, in one of his, like, sort of, as a, as a, a player with the, the level he, he thought of. So I don't know if people get mixed up with that, but I'm not too sure uh, whether Van Basten said it as well. I'm not too sure, but I know Cruyff said it. Well, I'll take both of them then. Cruyff and Van Basten. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> not bad at all. No, no. Van Basten, great player. He was one of my heroes, to be honest with you, Van Basten. So, um, great player, great technique. And ultimately, you go on to make over 100 appearances for Groningen between 1984 and 1988. And that includes a number of appearances in Europe. And during that spell, you also hit the back of the net nine times, including one against Feyenoord and a, a famous 2-0 victory for Groningen in, in January of 1988. And whilst things are going really well for you in the Netherlands, across the North Sea, Aberdeen have just recently appointed Alex Smith and Jockey Scott as their new management team following the, I was going to say unsuccessful spell of Ian Porterfield, but I think anyone having to try and follow Fergie was always going to be up against it. Yeah. And the Dons are obviously trying to renew their winning mentality. And Alex Smith was keen to open up and investigate new markets for players, and the Dutch market was one that he would plunder with great success over the following years. But it all started with, obviously, your good friend, Theo Schnelders, and then a week later, on the 22nd of July, 1988, you also joined the Dons in a £200,000 move. Can you tell us just how that move to Aberdeen came about? You know, what you knew about the club, the city, and, and how much convincing did Alex and Jockey have to do to get you to make the move? Um. Well, it all came about when um, the last game of the season was actually for Europe. We had the playoffs and we were playing FC20, which is Theo Snell's team. And the agent who Theo had at the time, Tom van Dahlen, he had good contacts with, um, I think, Alex Smith and I think Fergie as well. Um, he obviously, he talked about Theo. So Alex Smith was watching Theo over there that game. Uh, and he also said there's a player from the opposing team 
which is me, and that's also available as well. And as it was, uh, Teo never played that day. He was injured. So I think Alex Smith was already over there before he found out Teo wasn't playing. So obviously he watched the game anyway. Um, and that's when he invited me over. I think he's already made his mind up on Theo. I think that, I don't know if the deal was done then or I know they went far away. But I just saw it's like uh, another one who, who, I don't think he's made his mind up at all. He, just, he invited me over for two weeks, actually. Nothing was signed, sealed. Just uh, invited me over to... Um, to train with the lads uh, pre-season just to get used to things so didn't do much with the ball so we couldn't see much much, much um, ball work from me but I think he must have done a lot of um, homework and asked other people or whatever but I think after two weeks in uh, Aberdeen I did sign eventually you know so yeah um, so yeah and I think I've read somewhere and you might correct me if I'm wrong on this one that Alex Smith was actually scouting you initially for Fergie at Man United yeah. and Fergie had first dibs on you yeah, I heard that story as well. Alex Smith, I met him about three or four years ago. We were back in Aberdeen. We had a bit of a re- reunion. Um, and the first time I spoke to Alex Smith for a long time, it was really nice catching up with him and uh, talking about, you know, the old days. Uh, he told me that story, yeah. And I asked him, how, how did it go? Um, Fergie was looking for a right-back. And obviously, I was playing right-back in Holland. Um, although I was never a right-back, I could never tackle to save my life. But um, Fergie was looking for a right-back. And um, apparently, he told Alex Smith to have a look. So Alex Smith came back. He must have liked what he's seen with me. But he told Fergie, um, I think he told me the truth. He said, yeah, he's okay. He, he, he's, he said he'd be good enough, but he's not he's not tall enough for the back post, number two, like right back, you know. So uh, I don't think he'd be suited for use or um, the Premier League. And that was what he said, apparently. So I think Fergie was okay with that. And Alex Smith signed me. So uh, maybe from Alex Smith, I don't know. That's uh, but it could, it could have been different, you know, but you never know. There we go. And, and, you know, what did you know about the club and the city before you made the move? Well, obviously, growing up in Liverpool and um, every football match was on, you watch most of them, especially the, uh, the Cup and this Cup and what have you, the fans. So, they're a big club in my eyes, you know. So, we won a big trophy in Gothenburg. So, I knew a lot about them. Big, also a big club, yeah. And, um, and when I came over and uh, I was a bit overawed, really, thinking a club like that wants to sign me, you know. I just, um, I was a bit taken aback, but... Um, I was happy to, to sign in the end. And did you need much in the way of convincing to make the move? No, not at all, guy, no. I'd always want to be, obviously, being from Liverpool again. I've been in Holland for five years. Although I loved Holland, I loved Groningen. Uh, I could have stayed there for, forever, to be honest with you. But when you get a chance to come back to Britain um, and play in, you know, the Scottish League, um, I didn't think twice about it, you know, especially a big club like Aberdeen. I think I've, I've gone up a few notches, you know, from Groningen. Uh, like sort of sub top team to Aberdeen, we're a top team in in, uh, in Scotland. So I hadn't, yeah, didn't have any uh, yeah, any thoughts about not coming. And then, what were your kind of initial impressions of the new management team that they were at Petaldry at the time? In Alex Smith, uh, Jockey Scott, and Drew Jarvie, and and I guess of the squad. Once you joined up with them as well. well when I walked in the dressing the squad, I, th- I was overawed to be honest with you because a lot of players like you know, McLeish, Millers, McKimmies, well, Jim Beth, they're all internationals, you know, uh, Charlie Nicholas, uh, it's just like, so, I, thought, I, thought, I think I'm out of my depth here walking into the dressing room because <laughs> I don't think I belong in this uh, this standard. Um, that's the players, but the management team I didn't know much about, to be honest with you. Uh, although Alex Smith tells me a story that he said he only signed me because he said his mother was a scouser and he had a little soft spot for scousers. So that's why Alex Smith said, he said, so thanks very much. Not to do my ability then. He said, no, not to do my ability. So, um, but I didn't know much about Jockey and Alex. Obviously when I moved there, um, but obviously these days I did. How did you go with Jockey? Very good. Yeah, I like Jockey. Great man, a great coach. I think Charlie Nicholas 
says one time that's best coach he's ever had, and I'd go along with that because you don't realise at the time, but um, he's um, he's he, he keeps himself to himself and whatever. But he's good to get yeah get get, get the best out of each player. I think uh, I like him. A good man, I like him. Yeah, and um, you touched on it there. I mean, the squad that you join is still full of the likes of you know Willie Miller, Alex Pleish, Jim Bett, Neil Simpson, Charlie Nick. I mean, compared to the standard that you were used to in Holland at that point, was there a, a marked difference in kind of quality at that point? I think so, Gary. Yeah, and, and not just not just the, the, the players themselves, but the actual difference in the in the, uh, the game itself, the, the speed of the game. Uh, my memory takes. I'm not sure how, how true this my memory is, but we. I think I came on one time for a sub. I think my first appearance at Dens Park, and I don't know if it was a semi final of a cup or I don't think it was against Dundee, but I remember playing at Dens Park and I came on. And I actually thought, like stepping onto a motorway, you know, going in the middle of the park and whatever. I thought, bloody hell, the ball's whizzing past me, like left, right, and centre. And I just, uh, I thought it was just the pace was unbelievable. Um, so I thought then it did take me time, a bit of time to adjust because obviously used to be a bit of a slow build up in Holland. Um, the difference in um, the Scottish game is yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. And obviously, you make your first, well, you make your full Aberdeen debut as a substitute. You come off the bench for David Robertson in a League Cup second round tie against Arbroath at Pataudry. Aberdeen eventually running out 4 0 victors in that one. Can you remember much about your, your debut? Gary, I can't. No, I just, no. I, I just no, I don't. I couldn't know. I couldn't say. <laughs> uh, I remember my first goal. I scored that against Dundee United because Jockey's always telling me to get around the back post. And I remember that. Um, but I, I don't remember my debut now. Um, I, I thought something was someone at Dens Park that time when they came. I don't know when, where I get that memory from, but uh, I thought it might have been something to do with that. But I don't think I started the game. But uh, no, I don't remember my debut now. I think we'll come up to the Dens one in a minute. I mean, our first start follows the following Saturday against Sitman, and then you're kind of out of the team for a little bit um, before you came off the bench in a UEFA Cup first round tie at home against Dinamo Dresden, the ended goalless. And then um, the majority of our guests who we've spoken to so far who have featured for the Dons, especially in Europe, um, have always talked about how great the atmosphere at Pataudry can be on a European night. Um, did you kind of get that that feeling as well? Yeah, it was it was just different altogether, altogether Gary. Yeah, the, the atmosphere, um, the noise, yes. It was like a, a smog going over Pataudry, like a bit of a smog. I mean, it just was like sort of a great setting, you know. So, yeah, you did feel the difference, yes. And what did you think about Pataudry actually as a stadium to play in? I loved it. Yeah, it was quite tight. Obviously, you're close to the, the support and what have you. You can't know nowhere to hide, so it can't be good all the time. But now I love the stadium. Nice, nice and compact. Yeah, um, good. Um, the crowd was well. The crowd, I got on well. With the crowd, the crowd appreciates me. I think so. I can't, I can't argue. But yeah, I love, I love Pitoja. Nice, close, close ground. Yeah, rather than these ones, you get you know a bit, bit of a space in between. You sort of away from the crowd. Pitoja will be a little ground. Yeah, and um, Theo Ten Cat actually spoke beautifully about his thoughts about Pataudry not that long ago with us it was um it was good so I had the courage to go and check that one out in episode four again so sandwiched between those Dinamo Dresden ties there was a league cup semi-final against Dundee United at Dens this is the one I think you were thinking about oh yeah on. Um, Aberdeen run out 2-0 victors in that one to book a spot at hand and again you come off the bench for, for David Robertson in this one that's the one yeah, yeah. And, and that sets up a final against Rangers for a second year in a row for Aberdeen um, but the Dons come off second best in the final again this time it's 3-2 in another Hamden thriller. Now, I don't think you featured in the matchday squad for that one. Can you remember, was there any particular reason for that? Or Yeah, I was in the squad, Gary. Yeah, I do remember because um, I remember going with the lads. Um, obviously, we, I was dressed, but I never got changed to be a sub. I was sure there's two subs them days. I'm sure 
I think it was me and Paul Rice never got changed, or I can't remember, but I, I never got changed anyway. But and Alex Smith Wears wears me. I don't know why how he knew, but he said, Yeah, you you'll be you'll be involved next year, he said. So um that's what he said. That three two game when um, David Dodge scored two, we got beat three two, yeah. The second time against Rangers. Alex Smith did say that um you'd be involved next year, so don't, don't worry, keep your head up and whatever. So I remember that. And can you kind of give us some insight into the moods in the camp coming off that defeat? You know, like you say, it's a second League Cup final in a row where we've been beaten by Rangers. Was there a kind of level of despondency or was there quite a positive outlook that we can go again next year and try and get after them? It was despondent, Gary, because second time they beat us, you know. And I remember watching the game, I thought, I haven't been playing very well. Close game, 2-2, could have went either way, you know. Um, so they must have been despondent, you know. The lads must have been despondent. Uh, must be hard to get picked up again after getting beat twice like both. Yeah, just, uh, just had to take it, yeah. And after that League Cup final defeat, you kind of begin to gradually force your way into the starting lineup more and more often. And you grab your first goal for Aberdeen in a 1 1 drop to Audrey against Dundee United. And then the kind of season kind of peters out a little bit. Um, a disappointing Scottish Cup exit at the hands of United after a second replay in the fourth round leaves the Dons finishing up the season in second spot, six points behind Rangers with draws that really killed actually our chances to really mount a proper title challenge. But on a personal level, you finished your first season with 33 appearances in total across all competitions. You scored four goals. Did you kind of get to the end of that first season happy with your own involvement, your own contribution? And did you feel you were starting to now become a key member of the of the first team squad? Yeah, I think, I think so, yeah. Um... So, so I think it took me a while to get into the get involved in the first team, which was hard days as well because you just want to prove yourself and what have you. Um, so there's a few difficult months there early on. When you, obviously, you want to show people what you can do and no one knows you, things like that. But I think it's a bit really for myself that I can't perform at that level because I wasn't sure if I could, you know, with these um, um, people. But then after that first year, as you say, I played so many, so many games. Uh, I hadn't looked um, out of my depth. I was happy because... You know, I could play at that level, you know. So, um, yeah, I was quite uh, satisfied after the first season. And so moving on to the next campaign, the 89-90 season, you get the league campaign off to a flyer with a late winner against Hibs on the opening day. Can you kind of give us some insight into what was the, the, the atmosphere in the squad like ahead of the start of that season? I think the manager knew. I, I just think he, he knew that, um, he's got a good team together. There was not many weaknesses, Um uh, everywhere he looked again, apart from me, I think Brian Grant became an international. Um, international's over the park, you know, so he must have been satisfied uh, with, the, with the squad. I think he wanted two additions at the time. Craig Robinson maybe joined off that too early on, off for him. Or, but um, yeah, they always had strength and depth everywhere, so he must be quite happy. And then you find the net again in a 4 0 win over Airdrie at Pataudry in the League Cup. And again against St Mirren in the quarter finals as the Dons start the season in, in good form. Defeat to Rangers in an aggregate, defeat to Rapid Vienna in the UEFA Cup are the only real low points in the early stages of that campaign. And you also then feature for Aberdeen at Hamden for the first time as Aberdeen beat Celtic 1-0 in the League Cup semi-final to set up another final against Rangers. Before we move to the final, just on that semi-final itself, what, what were your kind of memories now about playing at Hamden for the very first time? Again, another great night, uh, mid midweek game. Um house great uh, great atmosphere um i don't know obviously it's all new to me but i i thrive on it you know um yeah, i remember being when the first stars think oh the crowd's going to get you will the crowds get you but once you cross the line uh, it doesn't and it's great atmosphere at hamden that's a bit obviously not as close not like i am um, audio where you're right on top of each other but um that was a great atmosphere um there as well 
and obviously that sets up a third League Cup final in a row between Aberdeen and Rangers. Was there a real belief, do you think, in the setup that this time we could go on and we could win it? I think, I th- well, you think so, yeah. In my mind, I, I, I was confident, but um, it must be hard. It, you know, your Jim Betty, Alan McLeish's, who played two years before. I don't know what their thoughts were because you've been beaten twice, obviously. Maybe I am more determined to beat them this time, you know. So, um, I think we, well, we weren't overconfident, but we, we weren't uh, scared. I know that for a fact we weren't. And on to the final itself. Um, the 22nd of October, 1989. So this episode is going out pretty much 32 years to the day of the final. And um, that can make us both feel much older than we actually are as a result of that. Can you kind of talk us through the build-up to the final itself? And I guess an interesting question for me is, what was the reaction in the dressing room like to hearing that the management team were going to give Young Ian Jess a start in the final? Yeah, I must admit, I was I was a little bit shocked myself because you think that's that's, that's a brave move, um, starting such a young player in a big match. Um, but obviously, they had confidence in him. Um, with actual build up, I remember the week before um, the program called Satan Greavesy, um, and Ian St John. I grew up with his son, you know, playing for Tramming and whatever. So they did a little piece on myself I think Charlie's Charlie's in as well so it's sort of like highlighting things like that I remember that about it sitting crazy being on that so I was getting a bit of attention really which I um, don't know if I liked or not I think I'd rather be no attention at all and keep quiet and just uh, do me talking on the pitch but um, I remember that part of it yeah the build up yeah um, I think I'm not being funny Gary there is a lot of build up I just want us to start because uh, the more you, the more the, you think about it or whatever you might think what can go wrong what, what we don't win or whatever um, I remember uh, I just wanted the, the game to start um, but yeah starting in just brave move by the management team um, so yeah they must have known he had the ability and uh, they're quite right too I think I remember seeing clips of that Saint Greavesy show. Is that the one where they made you drive up in like a, I don't know, what were you driving at the time? Yeah, a Sierra, a Ford Sierra. <laughs> That's it, a Ford Sierra, yeah. And a sign on it, it was sponsored from Sandy Thane in Inverary, <laughs> you know, so remember the name Sandy Thane. Thane. That's the one. Yeah, so I used to have little plaques, I used to put it on and when I didn't want my name to be shown, I put a little cover on it and whatever, so yeah. <laughs> You go those days. People see that video and say, bloody hell, it was at the top car in the day. I says, it was one of the best cars in the day, the Ford Sierra. It was like a tank, like, but I was happy with it anyway. It's one of those things from the 80s that just hasn't really aged very well, has it? That'd <laughs> be weird if you bomb now, I think, but antique one, it? Absolutely, definitely. Well, if it's, if it's your old one, it'll be worth a few bob in this second, <laughs> that's for sure. So can you describe for our listeners the kind of pre-match routine, um, the, the kind of feelings of being in the depths of Hamden pre-match and stepping out onto the field for a major cup final, especially one against Rangers. Yeah, you, just, you know, you know, it's different because it's. I think it's it's posh Hamden Park itself. It's like a, it's like different lockers all together. I remember that part of it. Like usually you go to a dressing room, just like there's like pegs everywhere. But Hamden is there, proper lockers. You know, You've got your own lockers. Um, bit more spacious and what have you. You can sort of hear the crowd. Um, uh, in the in the background, what have you? You know, it's a big occasion. You know, the, the, the management team and whatever. Uh, just you just sense the uh, the difference in the, um, the, the the roles of the management as well. You know, so um, more more press hanging around, whatever. More people to be seen to be in the dressing room. Um, but yeah, it's just yeah, it was, that's how it was. And on to the game itself. <clears throat> um, the Don start the game well, keeping Rangers at arm's length, whilst looking really threatening ourselves and come the 22nd minute the Dons win a free kick 25 yards from goal 
there's a little free kick routine off the training ground and Jim Betts shot smashes off the wall, finds its way to Bobby Connor, who places a lovely lofted ball up into the danger area. And it loops beautifully onto your head as you out jump Stuart Munro to nod past a stranded Chris Woods and put the Dons 1-0 up and send the Aberdeen fans in the East Stand into raptures. What can you remember about the goal? And can you describe the moment of knowing that it's going in? Because you must know a split second before it's in. Yeah, um, that's what goal when, when, it, when it happened, obviously happens quickly. Um, and Bobby Connor crossed the ball in. It was quite high, so as we thought of, I thought um, that split second or two, obviously I'm against Stuart Munro, and past you think, I was thinking, because the ball was in the air that long, the keeper's going to come and punch it and go right through whoever's there, which is normal what they do, you know. Um and then when you realise a split second again when um, the ball's coming down a bit, the goalkeeper sort of thought about coming and went back to his line or he's in, in no man's line sort of thing. Then I knew as the ball's coming down, all's, all's I've got to do is beat Munro in the air, which like we're both similar size and what have you. So I thought, that's all I've got to do. I think um, if I get me out of this, I can just loop it over the goalkeeper. That's what I remember thinking. But at my first thought where, where the goalkeeper's going to come, punch you. I'll have no chance. He's bigger than me and you have the harms anyway. So... That was half the thought. And when I realised that split second he wasn't coming, he was stranded. Um, I just knew I, maybe I, I knew where to outjump him on row. Um, and I did that um, okay, yeah. Um, and then the celebration, you just think, I just I remember that goal. It was like all my dreams had come true from a young boy um, when I first started watching Everton. And the thought of scoring a goal in the cup final. Um, and that all came to me 10 seconds, 15. 10, 15 seconds, you're just on a different planet, you don't know where you are, you know, and you watch videos of it now, and you see, you know, you're celebrating with your teammates, but you saw that, you've heard the same cloud now, but um, yeah, you just, you're just lost, you don't know um, exactly what's happened, what you've done, or, you know, just how, how nice the feeling was, it was great. How tempted do you think Charlie Nicholas was to pop his foot on it to see at home? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, I don't know if you could, could he have got it, I don't, I'm not too sure, maybe it might have been offside. I, don't I, think, I, I think I, if he'd have been a bit closer, he would have done it, but it wasn't that close, <laughs> I don't think. I, I reckon he could have done it. I think I think he could have popped his foot on it and got over. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be the glory. Let me have the glory. That's it. A good man. So 12 minutes later, though, <laughs> that penalty. I mean, from where you were on the pitch, could you see much of the incident itself? And and what goes through the minds of a player on the pitch when that sort of decision is given against you? Yeah, I just... <sighs> I wasn't one for more of the referees. I just got on with it. But you know, you, you Willie Millers and you're uh, people who you need players like that to, um, you know, stand crafty and um, stand your ground and what have you. And Willie went absolutely bizarre. I, I could see it where it was. I think I wasn't far from when the pass went in, and I was right directly. I see McCoy's backing into Willie, uh, Willie, uh, and exactly what happens, you know. And you'd have, you are fuming, you know. But every time I since I was in Aberdeen, every time we went down to Glasgow. One of management's favourite sayings was, we've got to beat the team, we've got to beat the crowd, we've got to beat the referee as well, you know. So I remember that. And that was just a, that was just one case of it because you look back at that and the coach knows what he's doing. It's clever as well. People say it's clever as well, but um, Willie couldn't go anywhere. What could Willie do? Um, and the referee gave the penalty, you know. So I, you feel like it's unjust, you know, but, um, well, I think it was unjust, you know, but... Um, yeah, the penalty got given, um, and that was it. I think Willie's blood pressure has probably only just started to come back down right about now, I think, <laughs> after that one. You're right. I remember Willie was going bizarre because, obviously, he knows a script down there and referees are against us all the time. So, uh, yeah, I think made a 
maybe worse for Willie because he's 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 had that situation a lot many times before, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So going in at half time at one one, was there any kind of major team talk or change in strategy or instructions from the management team? Again, Gary, I would, I would just it's all it's all a, a vague, vague memory, you know. Um, but we weren't uh, overall bad. And I think it was quite quite an open game, wasn't it? it was quite yes, it was. Either way. I know fear of the game is life and what have you, some of the saves he made, but it was quite end to end football, you know. So um, I can't remember the team talk at half time, but uh, nothing here, nothing different. I don't think um, we were overall at all. Uh, maybe just maybe much of the same, and you just need a bit of luck, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, the second half is kind of much of a muchness um, as the first half was quite open, but with no real, you know, obvious goal scoring opportunities for, for either team. And the game kind of drifts into extra time once again. And 12 minutes into the first period of extra time, it's time for you to take centre stage. A long throw from David Robertson finds the gigantic Willem van der Ark at the near post. His flick on is gathered brilliantly by Charlie Nichols, who lays on a plate for you to smash at home passwords. Was that a, was that a training ground move, that one? Because it looks like it. Watching it back, you think about it. It's, it's all the, the the three four players and the three players involved. David Robinson's got a long throw. Willem always gets the flick on. He's a big lad and what have you. And Charlie's game holding the ball up and they're uh, setting somebody else up. You know, so that worked perfect. Whether we did it, it didn't. Tr- I think we tried it a few times. It wasn't hard because Willem used to flick on a lot. He was playing with Charlie. Charlie get the the, the, the knock on. He could hold the ball up. You know, so uh, it worked that way. But it's funny that that the goal. If you look back at it. Um, Jockey Scott had a big hand in that because again, uh, I think it must have been just started at extra time, must have just started. And there's another another occasion very similar to that where Charlie had the ball in a similar position and it's back to goal, sort of sticking his bum uh, in the defender. Um, and he had no one to play it to. I didn't get up there to like midfielders, no midfielders got up there to join him. Um, so Jock off the line shouting, me, get yourself up there because you're getting a bit tired in extra time. Uh, and you need that because you know you're getting physically tired, man. I and maybe your brain gets tired as well. If you look back here, Gary, or I think it's about ten minutes before, and the same situation, and I should have been there. Charlie, I don't know what to pass it to. He turned himself, and the goalkeeper made a good save. Wasn't much power on the shot, but he just like the goalkeeper gave a corner away. But Charlie, because Charlie, I don't know what to play it back to. Was the goal? So Jockey went. He shouted at me. He's always shouting at me, actually. But he shouted, "Get yourself up there. Get your backside up there," because that's what the being, you know, so, so funny, well, as it happened, 10 minutes later, or whatever you said, 12 minutes into the second half, I was there this time, and that's all because of jockey, because I'm not being funny, if he wouldn't balk me or whatever, I might have do the same thing again, um, I wanted to do the first time, so I put it down to jockey, I did, because, yeah, you're all getting tired, it's extra time, uh, you want to make that run, if you do make that run, nothing happens, you've got to get back, and someone's, you know, someone else going to run past you, but yeah, I definitely put that down to jockey, from the first instance when I should have been there. Don't worry, I don't think it was just you that jockey shouted that. Speaking to everybody from that particular generation of Aberdeen team, everybody was getting it from jockey, I think, so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought just me now, I know. You didn't miss a thing, jockey was brilliant. He just, every player, you couldn't, you know what I mean? Quite, quite, quite amazing, good coach. Yeah. Just explain to us your emotions when that one goes in. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just a feeling, just think, um, I think that time, because it was like obviously just near the end of the first half of extra time, you think I, I could have won, I, I could have scored a goal there that wins us the cup, you know. That's you start thinking that then. Mm. Uh, maybe 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 after the half time when you turn around, you've got 15 minutes and gone. Um but that's what goal again. You're just same as the first one, guy, you're on cloud nine, you know. Uh, all my friends were from Liverpool, I had 200 friends up and family uh, on the coach. 
um, they're on the far side, obviously, with the Aberdeen fans. Um, it's just a feel overwhelming because they're all there support me as well. Uh, it was like a dream come true, yeah. I mean, it's amazing for us because, I mean, you become the second guy we've spoken to now who's scored winning goals in, in cup finals for Aberdeen. Uh, Duncan Shearer being the only other one that we've spoken to so far about it. But you're few and far between now. Um, Aberdeen players have got winning goals in, in cup finals. And obviously another 15 minutes of extra time comes and goes and the Dons have done it. A first trophy in the cabinet since the departure of Alex Ferguson. What were the celebrations like in the changing room and then back up the road afterwards? Yeah, I just remember, um, I think, big baths. Yeah, big bath um, in Hamden. Um I think the feeling was, it was, it was so much better and happier for the lads who'd been there the years before, the two years before, you know, as well, because I finally, well, third time looking when I'd be a must be a big relief for them as well, not just the, um, the well, the old team, right, but it must be great for them as well. But yeah, you're feeling, Gary, yeah, you've won, that's the, that's the pinnacle of your, of your career, you know, you want to win a cup, you want to be the best in the country. Um, there's no better feeling, you're on cloud now, well, I was anyway, I was on cloud now for, I think, the Sunday till, till Wednesday, you know, you're just like you're on a different planet. So Levin comes down, calms down a bit on a Wednesday. Um, great feeling, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I loved every minute of it. At the time, did you realise the enormity of your own personal contribution to the win and how that would kind of seal your place in Aberdeen folklore forever? Not really, guy. You don't look at you don't look you don't look at um, you know the future or whatever, what you what you do, you're just, you're just happy you've made it for the teammates. And, you, and everyone says this, it doesn't matter who scored the goals. Obviously, I get all the credit, I get all the applause now, which I'm really happy with, yeah, don't get me wrong. Uh, but at the time, you're just happy you've won the cup. you got your um, you got your medal, whatever, my first medal ever in, in football. Um, and that's all you worry about at the time. You don't think about anything else that happens 32 years later or whatever, you know, that, that's not in your thoughts at all. You're just happy. I think I'm happy for the management as well. Alex Smith taking the chance on the Dutch players, especially, you know, Teo, especially, uh, had a great game. Uh, and then Willem as well. You know, he, he, come, he, he looks good because he's got some good good bargains in Holland as well. So I'm happy for them as well. Jockey Scott, all the work, Drew, all the work they put in. You're happy for the old, you know, the old, the old connection, you know. Um, it's not just yourself. It's just a nice feeling of uh, camaraderie and you're all in together. That's what I, that's what I enjoy, to be honest with you. The, um, um, the old team is um, all together. And the league campaign that season, kind of similar to the year before, it kind of began to fizzle out a bit. Too many draws, meaning that Aberdeen eventually would finish second again, this time seven points behind Rangers. But progress in the Scottish Cup is swift. Um, Aberdeen seeing off Park this on Morton, Hearts and Dungeon United en route to a second cup final of the season, this time against the other mob from Glasgow and Celtic. Now, the game itself was a, a really drab affair. Can you remember much about that that final? No, I remember being a drab affair. I think, uh, yeah, it was, was a, wasn't uh, much entertainment compared to the Rangers game anyway. Um, wasn't much happening at all, you know. Um, very negative game or whatever. Um, yeah, a, a dour game. I think I, me- I remember. I think I had one chance. I got a shot. I think I passed it. If I might, my recollection, well, remember anyway. I think I should have shot myself, but I tried to pass it to somebody. But apart from that, I sort of remember what the game wasn't much happening at all, you know. And you're taking off at half time in extra time uh, for young Graham Watson. Was there any particular reason that you were withdrawn? I didn't ask. I just think maybe fatigue. I think I was getting tired. Um, and again, put a young lad on one of you. That's what I think anyway. There could be nothing else. Uh, I must have been run on empty. Um, put a young lad in the same position or whatever. Get, get the legs, maybe um, do something. Um, yeah, that's the reason I can think. With you. In a way, were you, were you glad to be taken off, given it meant you didn't have to take a penalty in the shootout? 
you know, at the time, like, you don't realise what's going on. You, you just, you just, you're obviously, you're in the zone, and you want, you want to win the cup and what have you. Um, and when I got taken off, I realised I went to penalties. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't even thinking about penalties when I got taken off. Um, whether I took one or not, well, I would have had to in the end, but um, no, I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't aware of that. You still think about 15 minutes to go. You want your team to score. You know what I mean? I wasn't thinking about penalties. It's, uh, you think, okay, new, new fresh legs or whatever. We've still got a chance. It's uh, still possible. Until the penalties come, yeah. Um, it's funny because when the penalties did come, and you see them all taking penalties and whatever, yeah, my own personal thoughts, I thought, well, when it goes right to the team, <laughs> did some one of the subs have to come back on take one? Oh, I thought I can't be getting used now, can I? Surely, I, I really didn't know. Well, I knew that I wouldn't come back on, like, but I thought, <laughs> but I'll be getting taken on to get one. But um, another thought about that, I always tell Brian Evan this. It was funny because obviously the lads who took the penalties all took theirs, and then. Is he's always like sixth, seventh, and eighth, didn't want to take one. But Brian, we started off on the halfway line, and by the time Brian Irvine got asked, he's in, in our penalty area because he backed off that much, he didn't want to take one. <laughs> and this comes up laughing, he's, he's in our goal, and he thinks I don't want to take one, but he ain't the answer, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've just touched on it. Obviously, the, the game goes into penalties. Uh, it's the first ever Scottish Cup final to be decided on a penalty shootout. You've kind of just touched on it a little bit there, but can you kind of talk us through? What it's like having to watch a penalty show in a cut final from the sidelines. Yeah, you're just, you're just nervous. If, if, if say you get beat, if, if two, three miss, and whatever, that's the way it is. But you just know when it goes to sudden death, um, you could be a hero or a villain, you know, and you just don't want your teammates to be that villain, you know, because the, the enormity of um, I remember thinking, I think I was quite happy in a, in a way, Gary, that I wasn't uh, in that position. Because you, you have to take one, you know what I mean? You don't want to be the, you know, you could have been okay, you could have scored, but good chance you could have missed. Uh, and I remember seeing some of the players and brave as well, some of the penalties. And I remember Charlie, well, I thought Charlie was quite brave because, you know, he had lots to lose, you know what I mean? Imagine his Celtic connections and what have you. And he slotted in quite well. I remember that. I thought, bloody hell, you know, this could be a couple of pro if he missed or whatever, you know, he got a lot of stick. So I, was, I, I thought he's quite uh, brave. Well, not brave, but he stuck it away quite well. All right. Glad Graham, Graham Watson, as you say, you know, uh, must be all it must have been the days walking up to the ball and what have you, but again, slotted it very well, you know. So, uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about professionalism, um, I would point anyone in the direction of Charlie Nicholson's penalty actually in that shootout because you know, Charlie's a he's a boy who's Celtic fan, we all know, he knows he's moving back to Celtic in the summer. Um, it, it would be pretty easy for him just to lean that little bit further back and pop it over the bar. And instead, he buries it at top corner. It's an absolute pearl of a penalty kick, um, given the time. You spoke about heroes and villains. As it is, there's two heroes on the Aberdeen side. One, and you you were and you remain really close friends with Theo Schnelders. How chuffed were you for him when he makes the save from Anton Rogan to put the Dons in the driving seat? Yeah, well, he deserved it. Well, well the old team deserved it. The, the penalties in the Yeah, obviously, keepers and penalties are very important, aren't they, you know, so... Tell me a great save. Um, and it's just, yeah, it'll, it'll go down in history, you know. So I was happy, really happy for him, yeah. Uh, he's there. They had two games. The, the other cup final, I think he's maybe man the match as well. Yeah. When he played Reigns in the Skull Cup, he just unbelievable. The saves he played, he made, you know, it was unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, he did well. He's there. He Absolutely. Yeah. And the other hero is obviously Brian Irvin. Uh, he spoke about he makes the 100 yard walk from their penalty box to tuck <laughs> his one away. Yeah. And we spoke to Ian Jess about this. Um, Ian obviously didn't play that day, but he kind of mentioned that the celebrations for this one were a lot more subdued than they were for the League Cup final. Was that almost just a relief, a sense of relief that we got it done, having gone to penalties and everything that had gone with it, and at the end of a really long season? 
Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, and obviously it's the second time to second one, okay, maybe it's three or four months in between, but maybe it was, maybe it was a bit, um, bit tired and a bit of fatigue setting, but yeah, um, good shout that maybe that was the reason, yeah. Looking back on it now, um, do you feel that at the time that 89-90 squad didn't necessarily get the credit that they deserved for winning that domestic cup that season? And the reason I say that is because it's taken until St. Johnston last year to win, well, for any non-Glasgow team, to win both Cups in the same season. And with the greatest respect to St. Johnston, they didn't face either of Rangers or Celtic in their respective finals. Is it only now possibly in retrospect that people actually recognise just how big an achievement that really was? Yeah, but I think at the time, okay, Aberdeen were holding their own all the time against the uh, Celtic and Rangers, so maybe, they, I know what you're saying now, it's, you know, Football's changed a hell of a lot. Um, and not many teams outside Celtic and Rangers win cups now, like so. And St. Johnson have done it. But at that time when we were playing, we we up there, we we were holding our own against them, no problem at all. Uh, so it wasn't much of a surprise there. Now, obviously, as the, the game's changed a lot, you know, uh, we maybe should have got more records, but people used to win it because we, we, we chanced them all the time in them days. But nowadays, it's just changed altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And on a personal level for you, it's a phenomenal second season at, at Pataudry. You finish up with 46 appearances in total across all competitions, which meant you topped the appearance charts for the squad that year. You also finished as top scorer, 15 goals in total, which put you two ahead of Charlie Nick. You put that together with two winners' medals, and it's not a bad haul for your second season in Scotland, is it? Yeah, it's got to be. I think it's going to be one of the most well, successful, uh, most, one of the best years, really, guys. Wise altogether, yeah, I must be in my prime. Yeah, must be in, what 26, 27. Yeah, must got to be one of my best years ever. In stepping away from football just for a second, how did you find life in, in Aberdeen and in Scotland, I guess, in general? I loved Aberdeen. Um, I enjoyed where I lived in Moravia. I was living in the city centre enough uh, because everywhere I've lived, obviously, grew up in Liverpool, I was near the city centre. Um, I was always a city lad. Um, we lived um, just off Holbein Street. Um, our old called Broomhill Avenue. Uh, quick funny story about that. Me and Theo obviously came over at the same time, ended up becoming very good friends. So we're living in Athol, Athol Hotel for about three months, four months. The hotel goes this way, I go my way. I look with my missus, he's looking with his missus for the house. And maybe about September, October time, we've been looking for two or three months. And um, we both go into training separate. And I said, so I've got a house. He said, so have I. I said, whereabouts? He said, Broomhill Avenue. I said, so have I. So you wouldn't believe it. Like, we weren't looking, obviously, looking different places. We found one, um, one in the Broomhill Avenue. I found one that, uh, further up. Like, so that was quite uh, that was quite funny. But I love living there. Yeah, I loved Aberdeen. Um, I wasn't far from the Abigail the pub. I don't know why I'm saying that, like, but I always like to live near the pub and have a little relaxing. Because I've always been brought up near the pub in Liverpool, where I'm from. Uh, it's just maybe a party night where you can just you feel like you're with the locals. And I've always wanted to be with the locals, Gary. I never wanted to, uh, like, this day and age now, it must be hard for footballers because they've just become so out of reach of the support, uh, the, the spectators, you know, they're on a different level, aren't they? So, yeah. you get scenes again, but in, in our day, I loved it, mixing with the supporters, you know, okay, you can get a few bad shouts now and then, but I don't, I just think it was great uh, mixing because we're all normal, you know, just um, having a pint with the lads and what have you, and even um, uh, locals and whatever, I loved it. So, yeah, I loved Aberdeen, I loved uh, the city, uh, wasn't too big, just nice, uh, no complaints at all. It's an interesting point you make, actually, because I wonder if that's part of the reason why, you know, in the, in the modern game, why footballers maybe get a lot a lot more stick than perhaps they used to. Do. And obviously social media and stuff's got a lot to play in that. But there is part of that disconnect, I think, as well. You're not going to see players now 
you know, out of the local pub, even if they're in just for a soft yeah. drink, it just doesn't happen. They've become so, so, um, I say, I think it's the money, Gary. The money's going to sell you, but we're yeah. sell you if money you get it. It just comes so out of reach. So you're not, you're not with the normal people, you're not on the same wavelength, you know. Um, and even now, okay, we are a bit better money, whatever, than you. You join as an electrician, but you still mix with them, you know what I mean? It's crazy. You're still like one of the lads, you know what I mean? We weren't like wealthy in any, any amount, well, wealthy at the time, but now it's gone silly, you know, um, the money-wise, uh, money side of it. Uh, I don't think you can, you can't communicate with the, the, the support anymore, it's just all, I don't know, they're just, it seems like different people altogether, just uh, you can't communicate with them because they think that, I don't know, they're, they're too good or what, I don't know, but um, I loved it when I could obviously talk to support someone like that and uh, enjoy myself. Yeah, because I think it probably buys players time with supporters if they feel that these are just normal guys like you or I, you know, that, and okay, they maybe have a couple of bad performances, but they're good lads. And, you know, you give them a bit more of a kind of break, I guess, from that, rather than when you just see guys on social media or whatever, and that's the closest you get to seeing any of them. Yeah, 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 I think I think so, yeah. Am I right in thinking that at one point as well, you were approached about possibly representing Scotland? Yeah, I think um, we should go down the, uh, to obviously, away game in Glasgow. I think we were playing... Uh, I can't remember we were playing. We stay in the Excelsior Hotel. We used to have a meal, obviously, all the lads together with the management. And Alex Smith asked me one time, uh, me, 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 um, my heritage, you know, where I'm from, and what have you. I think he's asking on behalf of the Scotland manager. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Andy Rush at the time, or I can't remember who it was. Um, ask him, um, you know, where, where my grandparents are from, and what have you. Uh, it was a nice, nice thing, but I've, I've got no Scots. I had no Scottish um, connections whatsoever. Uh, I did have some Welsh connections apparently from my dad's side, but um, that was all. So Alex Smith asked me, and I just told him, you know, I haven't, you know, so uh, never went any further. To be honest with you, it was nice though, nice to get, um, nice to get thought of in that way. Uh, I've read stories where people say you could have got X amount of caps and whatever. That was nice. That was nice. Uh, nice people to say, you know. So it would have been. But I, I, I'm one of them. I'm not being funny. Uh, I love the, I love the national anthem of Scotland, but. Being from Liverpool and you, you, you sing another another an accent, another anthem. I don't think it's sits right. I know people play for Ireland from Liverpool, play for Ireland, things like that. I don't know. I never got asked at all. Maybe I would have, if someone have asked me, maybe I would, I would, but I never did. But it'd still be strange singing another anthem, wherever you're from and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it never happened anyway. One of my nephews actually said, uh, you're silly, you should, you, should, you should have played. So I said, I couldn't, I couldn't play for Scotland anyway because I wasn't Scottish. I didn't know what grass So I couldn't like sort of chief and say I've got like grandparents who were Scottish. Like, so it was impossible anyway, really. Unless, uh, but I read one book, uh, Tony Cascarino wrote a good book. Apparently he played for uh, Ireland, didn't he? Yeah. And he, he shouldn't have done it at all. He had no, uh, no heritage at all. I think he's more Italian than anything else. Like that was a good story. So, but maybe I could have done that and got away with it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Jack Charlton's Republic of Ireland had more scouts in it than anyone from Dublin, I think. So, turning back to Aberdeen, I mean, going into the 1991 season, after coming off the cup double, was there a belief in the squad that we could maybe go one further and, and look to really go for it in the league that year? I'd say, yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Uh, not much has changed. The same management team. Um, whatever, whatever we need to strengthen up to, to do it, to get to buy one or two players, just keep, uh, keep the squad um, solid. Yeah. So, no reason not to think anything different, you know? So, um, and once again, you're a key member of that first team, that campaign, but exits from the Cups to Rangers in the League Cup semi-final, uh, Muddle in the third round of the Scottish Cup, which was a real disappointment, and then to Legia Warsaw in the Cup Winners' Cup. Kind of put a bit of a damper on things, and the league form's not much to write home about either until the Dons then embark on a remarkable 
run of results that started with a 5-0 victory over Hearts on the 2nd of February. Paul, you got the 4th that day. And this culminated in Aberdeen going unbeaten for 12 games, winning 11 of them to set up that final day shootout with Rangers at Ibrox, with Aberdeen only needing a draw to win the title. And you were in and out of the team for that run, and was that an injury? No, I'll tell you what it was, Gary. I, I had a word with Alice Smith. It was my third year. I had a three-year contract. Um, and I had a bit of a fallout. I just always said I was being honest with the manager. He wants me to sign a new contract. Um, and I've got no qualms at all about telling people this. I loved Aberdeen. But I was getting to 20, I think I was 27 that year. And my, my dreams of playing in England. And I said to him, listen, Gaffer, I'd stay but if someone comes in from me, I'd like to go to England if that's possible. If not, I'll stay here in Appley. If not other club I'm interested in, I'd like to go to England and play in England. So that sort of put us on a bit of a um, um, what, what little bad feelings, I think, in Malavia. So he sort of dropped me once or twice in Malavia, left me off the team. But I, I, know, I still carried on, played reserves, no problem at all. I just be, I'm just being honest, really, being very honest. Maybe I was too honest with my own good um, because that's what I said. I said, listen, if no one comes in, no problem at all. Give me the pen and paper, I'll sign again. Um, nobody did come in but in, that, in the, the last few months I was in and out of the team as you say um, but when I got called upon I did okay um, but they went on a great run um, till the end of the season um, I think I played the second to last game against Motherwell yeah. I think it was Motherwell was it yeah um, and then it was the big one the final where we uh, needed a point the final game yeah and ultimately you miss out on that last day but you know can you talk us through the the atmosphere in the squad and the build up in that week leading up to the game and I guess the sense of disappointment that comes after the game finishes yeah I think one thing about remember that Airbox at the time there was um, all portal cabins we like sort of getting changed in, in toilet sort of thing it wasn't a very nice uh, set up to be honest with you obviously that was part of the part and parcel obviously a big game but one of my disappointments was um, we'd, we'd had that run um, what 10-11 games won, won most of them Playing a positive four-three-three formation, um, and obviously we weren't scared of anybody. We had to win anyway to catch uh, catch Rangers up, what have you. Um, my only disappointment was um, the final game. He changed it, and I, I think he don't want this place individually or whatever. But he went four-four-two. No, that we needed a point. Uh, the manager told me we had the way about this. When I spoke to him three or four years ago. Uh, obviously, everyone's memories a bit jaded, and what have you. A few questions what 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 happened with me and him or what happened to Monadia. Um he actually told me on a Friday night that I was playing. Okay. Uh, yeah and I, I'm not speaking out of term. I, obviously um I've told Alex Smith this and Monadia. But he's obviously he's, he's thinking of all kinds going through his head, what should we do, what should we do, what should we do? Um and I think well obviously in the end he went four four two he changed it so um I wasn't involved. Which is, if you go and win or you're going to get a point, no one will ever say they get it again, you know, but obviously it um, didn't go well. But I, I, I'm a believer in we, sh- we still should have played, whether I played or not, we should play 4 3 3 again, just play what we've been playing up to that point because everywhere we, everything we did with Aberdeen, we just, we weren't feared of anyone, we played our game. I think when you start thinking about other teams, how they play and trying to nullify that, and that's when you come unstuck. And I think maybe the manager maybe thought too much about Rangers' threat. Um, and maybe tried to, obviously, we needed a point. But that's football. We had a chance in the first half, I think. I think Peter van der Ven. It could have been different, you know. You, should, you, you put your chance away. Different story. Um, but it wasn't to be that day. But I was, yeah, I was disappointed. And the feeling at the end of it, yeah, I just I remember seeing young Ian Jess and Scott Booth, yeah, obviously, young kids and all that. And 
we're all disappointed, you know. Um, I'm trying to be brave and trying to go around to say, you know, pick your head up, it'll be another time or whatever. But it was a huge disappointment, you know, because after getting so close and playing so well for the last three months of the season, getting that close and, um, yeah, just, just uh, it, was, it was a bad day that year. Yeah. And obviously, not pointing fingers or anything in a particular direction, but do you think that we really missed Theo in that final day as well? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think... Um, Obviously, yeah, I think one thing I remember seeing, I think um, Hately clattered young Michael Watt in one, before any goals got scored. I think basically, yeah. obviously, that's, the, that's what players do, you know, get young kid, young kid in goal, let them know you're there and what have you. That had no, no um, um, effect on any goals, nothing like that. But um, yeah, I think we missed Big Theo that day. Obviously, it's character and charisma. And, um, with the back four as it was, um, you can't blame anybody. But on the day again, as I say, we would have scored when we had that chance or two. Could have been a different story, you know. The crowd would have shut up. They might have felt a bit nervous or whatever. But, uh, yeah, huge pubs. I remember that, yeah. Because I'd love to win the league, even though I wasn't playing that day. Um, that would have been a great uh, great achievement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a real... It's potentially a real sliding doors kind of moment um, in Scottish football that day. Because, you know, if, if Aberdeen win the league that season, Rangers don't go on to win nine in a row. Um Obviously, the Champions League is starting to come around in its infancy at that point. Um, it's one of these days I think a lot of people, and I, I don't think it's just Aberdeen fans looking at it because we're biased about it. I think it potentially could change the landscape of, of Scottish football had, had Aberdeen won the title that, that day. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, a lot of the guys we spoke to who played that day, they've all said this was basically the worst day of their careers. And you didn't play, obviously, but were you... Does it rank up there with you as well? Yeah, it does. Yeah, just what it was. Yeah, as you said, I didn't play that day, but I still obviously part of it. Uh, you've been part of running and what have you, and you're gutted because all oh, your teammates again. That, that that is the pinnacle, you know. When I've never won a league, um, and we, we got so close for many years, but that was the closest uh, we ever going to get um, in my time there anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I was most gutted, most worst I've ever felt to myself after, after the game ever. Yeah, biggest disappointment ever. So moving on to the next season, obviously you, you stay at Aberdeen. You don't make an appearance until the end of August. Um, it's a drab nil-nil draw at Tanadice before you're kind of in and out of the team again as the dawn season just really never gets going. Um, an early exit to BK1903, Copenhagen in the UEFA Cup prompts the exit of Jockey Scott. That left Alex Smith obviously in sole charge. Did, did Jockey leave and did you, did you think that that really kind of changed the dynamic in the, in the dressing room a little bit? Yeah, I think so, because, well, ever since I was there, there's always two of them together, you know, um, working well in tandem, obviously, Alex Smith doing all the press and uh, maybe the, most of the teams uh, picking, but uh, Josh Scott did all the coaching, whatever, so yeah, it was a big, 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 big loss because he was half, he was half the, uh, the coaching staff, you know, uh, while he's doing all the training, whatever, so I left a big hole when he left. And obviously things kind of go from bad to worse that season, a, a run of only two wins in 16 games sees Alex Smith become the first Aberdeen manager to be to be sacked. Um, a 1-0 home defeat to Hibs proving to be the final straw for the for the board. What was your own reaction to Alex being sacked, especially as he was, you know, between him and Jockey were the, the guys that brought you to the club? Yeah, I, well, what do you think, uh, what you've done, well, brought me to the club, what have you done for me? I really respect the both of them. Um, yeah, it was a bad sign for me because, yeah, I've, I've really, I've, them as managers since I've been there um, and I got very close and what have you so when you think they've been sacked they've gone is it end of an era and what have you um, yeah I, was, I wasn't I was happy because um, uh, I felt for both of them 
And ultimately, Willie Miller takes over and stabilizes things. The Dons finish the campaign in sixth spot, which is still, at that point, the Dons' lowest finishing league position since 1976. What was your um, relationship like with Willie? And what did you? What was your initial reaction, I guess, to him being put in charge? Well, I think when it wasn't going too well for Lance Smith, I think he had a lot of injuries. We had a lot of injuries and whatever. Obviously, the results weren't going good. And I think it was more fan power to got Willie the job because he's been, Willie's just started his coaching career in the reserves. I think he was coaching the, the second team, and obviously being a great player. Um, and then the crowd get restless. You were getting beaten, whatever. Yeah. So just not natural. They all say, you know, put Willie in charge. I think the board have done that. They've gone there for Willie because he's had a, a go with the reserves and whatever. That's the next step up for him. Um, but my relationship, I don't know. Um, I don't think Willie was. Was it was he was he a great manager? I don't know. I'm not too sure. Um, but he took the job, and I think it's a bit too early myself for Alex Smith to guess that person. I thought that because okay, before then we had good years and what have you, but okay, just fair sort of dipping. But the um, never got you know, never got much time, I don't think. Yeah, and the crowd obviously you get restless and what have you, and all listen to the crowd. But that's football, you know. Um, I thought Alex Smith should go a bit longer, but then Willie's next step in because obviously a legend as a footballer. He'd cut his teeth in the reserves, so he just like the next step up was, you know, in the first team. Um, but was he a great manager? Um, well, I don't think he's uh, time to, to learn his, learn his trade, really, but um, that's, that's what I think. And did you notice a big change in Willie's kind of, like, the relationship with, like, yourself and other players in the team having gone from still being in the, you know, not necessarily in the first team, because he was obviously suffering with injuries and everything quite a lot at the time, but having gone from a, a player in the dressing room to, to a coach, reserve coach, etc., to then being the guy in charge, was there a noticeable difference in his... Yeah, there always is. When you ask, it must be hard. When you pick one, one million a player, and then obviously, okay, captain, whatever, the next million, you're a manager, where you've got to sort of, you know, you know what's going on with the players, how the players go about things, like you're a manager, you know, and what you can get away with, what they can't. Obviously, the change in personnel, the change in... Relationship because you're not his teammate no more. He's your boss. You know what I mean. So um, that changed obviously. Um, but I think the style of play when he played didn't suit me neither. I just think when he first started, it was just um, long balls and whatever. If, if I remember, I don't remember too much about it. Um, but, but we had Mixu Pasolano playing all the time. I think it was just like basically long balls up to Mixu and get the get the feeds off the the, 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 the knockdowns off Mixu and whatever. That was basically a one tactic we had. Um, but yeah, um, it wasn't great days. It wasn't great days for me. I don't think I was enjoying it. I don't sign a two-year two contract. Um, I was. I think I was, I was happy enough, but um, the football wasn't what it was like before when Al Smith and Jockey Scott was there, you know. Um, and I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I did the first three years. Yeah, it certainly became, a, I guess, a more... I don't know if I want to say direct, because I don't think that's necessarily fair, but it became a lot more... The ball was getting shifted up the park a lot quicker. Um, there was a lot of relying on getting the ball down the wings and getting balls thrown in the box and, and relying on a a front four, um, which was actually, you know, if you look back at it now, um, in retrospect, still quite a potent front four when you had the likes of uh, Mixu, Duncan Shearer, Scott Booth and Ian Jess. Um, and, and, you know, Willie begins to, to, to shape his team in that 92-93 campaign like uh, Lee Richardson and, and Duncan Shearer joined from Blackburn Rovers, but the season very much becomes a what-if kind of campaign because, once again, you're a regular starter as Abney make their way into the League Cup final, although you play all the rounds of getting to the final, but you don't make the final match day squad. Any particular reason for that one? Uh, do you know what? 
What year is this? I can't remember that, that League Cup. Uh, 92. 92. It's Gary, Gary Smith with the own goal in um, late and extra time. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not recollecting why I, didn't, why I wasn't playing. No, I remember, yeah, I'm not a clue. Um, if I wasn't injured, I don't know what the reason was. Um, I'm not too sure, unless I'm upset with somewhere along the line. Um, was I playing before? I can't remember if I played up to, up you played you played all the rounds up to the up to the up to the final. Um but yeah, I mean after the final itself, you kind of come back and the Dons then go on a bit of a mad scoring spree with stick seven past Park Thistle. Uh, you you get one, six past Hearts, and you get another one, <laughs> and then another seven past Airdrie. And as I touched on earlier on, all in all, we score 111 goals that season. Um 83 come between Shearer, Patline, and Booth and Jess. You've kind of already answered my question to this because I was going to say that must have been quite a lot of fun to play in a team that's as free scoring as that, but maybe it didn't quite suit your your own natural game. Yeah, I just uh, my memory's not very good, Gary. To be honest with you, that's where Tell Tell comes in handy because Tell remembers everything. He tells me everything, so you all tell me things now. I, I can't remember not playing in the, in the league cup final. Um, but yeah, the football, yeah, was still being good, yeah. Well, Duncan Shearer, he's great playing. I remember playing Duncan. Great to play with. What a what a finisher he was, you know. What a what a goal. Again, any around the 18 yard box, yeah. Guys, I watched a few videos, yeah, brilliant. So, yeah, and young Jess and Bird, obviously, uh, must be a good time, must be free scoring football. So, still must be enjoying it, you know. And it's great because all the guys you speak to, like, like Savian Jess, likes of Duncan, um, <clears throat> Rico as well, you know, everyone touches on the fact that we had, you know, at, at that point, what felt like quite a complimentary squad in a way that had, you know, you know, had the four guys up top that you could mix around with. All of them are all exceptionally. Um, complimentary around the likes of yourself, Brian Grant and Rico. Jim Beck was still kicking about as well at that point, you know, who were all doing great roles in the midfield area as well. And then a, a pretty a pretty decent back line as well at the time. Um, but eventually the kind of league campaign falters to an extent. Aberdeen finish up nine points behind Rangers, but again, make their way past Hamilton, Dungeon United, Clyde Bank and Hibs to set up a Scottish Cup final at Celtic Park against Rangers. Now this is obviously your final game for the club and you start this one but the Dons never really kind of get going and are 2-0 are down at half time a late Lee Richardson effort gives a bit of hope but it's not enough and we end up second best to, to Rangers in all three domestic competitions I mean for me that 92-93 team deserved to win something um, did the kind of team feel the kind of same way? Yeah yeah. I'm just trying to remember the, the cup final yeah I think um we just never got going at all. Um, I don't know what happened that day. We just didn't play our football, nothing like that, nothing at all. I remember the Richardson playing, what have you, um, and your Duncans and what have you. It was, it was great to play, and good team against to play, free-throwing football, good football to watch as well. Um, so maybe we did deserve to, to win something. Um, um, yeah, maybe we did, yeah. And ultimately, you know, that final is, is your last appearance for Aberdeen. You then make the move to Ipswich Town in a £400,000 move that, saw you make the step into the burgeoning English Premiership. You, you kind of touched on it earlier on, so I guess it's probably the same answer to this, but was it just simply, in your mind, time to make a move to England that prompted that move to Ipswich? Yeah, well, I had that five years at Aberdeen, and I always wanted to play in England, Gary. Five years in Holland, five years in Scotland. Um, that was perfect time. I thought I was getting a bit too old, really, 29, um, to, to make it, especially in the Premiership anyway. Um and that final game at Hamden, I think John Lyle was there watching with um, Charlie Woods, to um, manager of Ipswich and co-manager. Um, they were watching that day, apparently. Um, I think I was playing right midfield. 
in the Youngs team, I was right, right back. I think we, we played quite well together as a you know duo. Another team didn't win, um, but they must like what they have seen. Um, but yeah, that came out the blue again, just after whatever, um, or two, three days. I went down. He says, "You want to come have a look around Ipswich?" So I thought, so, "Okay, I'll have a look." You know, what, what, how, the, how the procedure went? So I'm not used to like moving clubs. Um, they showed me around, and uh, next thing I just thought, okay, I looked at the place, looked at it, just John Lyle took me to his house in London, nice house, nice man, lovely man. Um, and took me to his, just showed me around, and I just thought I was going to fly back to Aberdeen and maybe have a think about it. But then after the little tour, he took me into the um, into his office and had a guy, uh, Jimmy McCarthy, was there, who was sort of an agent and whatever. Yeah, he was there, um, and he started talking business before he knew I, I'd signed, you know, so must have all been agreed before then. Um, but came as a quick shock to me, didn't have, have any inkling whatsoever. I just thought it was going to be summer away. Um, I think what's next for me. Um, but before you know, uh, I'd already signed for this. But I was happy because playing the Premiership, playing all the big grounds I wanted to play at, you know, your old Trafford's, Goodison's, Anfield's. It was always my dream as a kid. I loved every minute of Holland. I loved every minute of Scotland. But um, I loved, I wanted to play in England as well, you know. So that was me. Another, another good dream come true. Absolutely. And we talked about this before we came on air, but I've made the horrendous faux pas of talking to an Ipswich Town ex-player and I'm wearing my Norwich City hoodie as well just now. So... I'm lucky we actually continued. Um, but obviously, you stay you stay with Ipswich for the remainder of your career. You, you make a total of 112 appearances for the Tractor Boys, scoring 36 goals um, in your time there before announcing your retirement from the game in 1999. And your spell at Aberdeen saw you make a total of 183 appearances with 37 goals. And you left Pataudry with a League Cup and a Scottish Cup winner's medal in your back pocket. And as a player revered by the Aberdeen support, especially for those two goals, in that League Cup final. We'll wrap things up here just now, Paul. Um, you've given us way more time than we deserve, but we've got one last question for you, if that's all right. And this is one that we ask all of our guests. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? I love living there for five years. Two of my children being born there as well. Um, so, and every time I meet someone from Aberdeen, I get a, um, a great feeling because they admire me and whatever, and um, I love going back there as well. Um, so yeah it's just a, a hole close to my heart Paul Mason top man thank you for joining us on the ABZ Football Podcast stand free cheers pleasure and that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast thanks for joining us and please remember to like subscribe follow whatever on your podcast player of choice join us next week for episode 16 where we'll review our SPFL Premiership doubleheader against Rangers and Hearts before previewing the visit of Motherwell to Pataudry before the next international break. We'll also take our usual look at the women's team and our youth setup before we round things off with an exclusive interview with another man who was part of that squad that won the cup double in the 1989-90 campaign. And it's fair to say this might be the most controversial interview we partake in on the show as we talk with David Robertson about his time with Aberdeen, that transfer and life in India as manager of Real Kashmir. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Stand free.